I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. So this has been kind of a, a crazy time for you right now. I can't even imagine what you're going through. What are you, what are you thinking when it comes to being kind of the center of this investigation, it feels like? Uh, what I feel like? Better going to railroad me again, set me up. Who do you specifically think is framing you and why? Manitowoc County, the Sheriff's Department. They really never did like the Avery's. This wasn't a documentary at all. This was a defense piece. It was generated by and for Stephen Avery by his defense team. It wasn't until Netflix decided to repackage this as a documentary that both sides were invited to participate. We know he made you do Shelton Alice. What was it? Thirty punch What else? It's okay. Language to do. Connor. Cutter where? Iris Sorwell. Cutter draw. What else happens to her in her head? What else? That's all I can remember. Who shot her in the head? Hello and welcome to I Can Murder a Podcast, episode three of series eight. We're here, we're back again with a huge case, a case that I think we've uh, we've mentioned a lot in previous episodes. Um, but we'll get into that. How are you doing, little Benny boy? Yeah, doing very well, thank you. I think uh, I think it, well, it's great to be here first of all. So yeah, yeah, thank yeah, you definitely. so much for having me. Hey, don't um, worry. I think uh, this morning it's quite apt that we're recording this episode. It's been we've had a hot uh, several several weeks of hot and dry weather, and this morning was very dark and grey and rainy. And I thought it just I could start hearing the soundtrack to this case, and then I thought, oh, is it Game of Thrones? Is it making a murderer? What, what's going on? Um, but yeah, really, there's a lot of suspense in the air, I feel. Dan, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, very, very good. I'm very excited, actually, for today, because um, mm. like uh, most of the world, I was swept up in that, that big old documentary, and um, mm. I'm excited to hear another side to it. Yes, indeed. Uh, as Ben and Dan have alluded to there, of course, today we're doing The Making a Murderer, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case. One that I have quite firm opinions on, which we'll get into. Uh, I think the documentary was incredibly biased one way, left a lot of things out, and also probably was about... It could have been condensed a lot. A lot of those episodes are recapping and drawn out, and it's, yeah. When you watch... When you watch that now, compared to a modern slick true crime documentary, is very long-winded. Mm, I, I, I'd fit, I would agree with you about the second series. I didn't really give that much much time, but the fir- I really enjoyed the first series. And you like the staircase, don't you? Yeah. I feel like that one's more drawn out than making a murderer, but that's <laughs> just me. It spans over a longer time as well, though. So it does. In a way. It's a long staircase. I, I it do is, agree. It's a long but... staircase. It goes around. It takes you around in different places, and sometimes those places um, make you make you, make you question things. Yeah. I just think, yeah, I remember watching it at the time, thinking it was quite drawn out. I mean, I, I I enjoyed it the first watch. I think the second watch when I watched it, I was like, this could have been all mm. slicker. It was one that swept the uh, swept the world, 
got um i think it really gave birth to a lot of true crime documentaries mm-hmm. um netflix took a bit of a punt on it and uh they haven't looked back since no absolutely not no it's a, it's uh it's an it's a super interesting case we did a minnesota in kind of midweek where there was just no extra content available to kind of research the case that we were doing very limited whereas this one cool we could have we could have gone on for weeks in terms of the different stuff out there and there's biases to be talked about um but i'm excited i've got more of a fluffy opinion than your firm opinion which might not surprise people like um uh, my fluffy opinion keeps swaying uh it's kind of similar to the adnan sayed case where i was swaying quite a bit but then i landed in the guilty camp i'm swaying a bit again i am swaying a bit again and uh you're like pissing the wind in the wind aren't you ben uh, yeah, I think I, I think very much so, and I think like a lot of people that watched it at the time, I was caught up in probably the bias of the documentary, and was like, "How has this happened?" Particularly with Brendan. Oh yeah. But now, after doing a bit more research, I'm still on the innocent side for Brendan, but I'm not sure about Stephen. But I, I do sway, and I am fluffy. So who knows where I'll end up? It's quite exciting. Yeah, much better end up all all muddy and uh, well, you know, pissing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, yeah, let's see where the fluffy fluffy Ben uh, ends up, really. Uh, we wanted to say a massive thank you for everyone that has uh, been giving us such lovely feedback on the first couple of episodes. Um, uh, we've been really, really happy with the response. Um, we hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode, The Green River Killer. Uh, and we're excited because we have another 15 very big cases coming your way. So do stick around, subscribe if you haven't already. And please feel free to leave us a rating. Yes, indeed. Over on Spotify and on iTunes and anywhere you listen to, if you can leave a little rating or review, it helps more than you'll ever know. And a quick little note to um, the YouTube audience, people who watch the content um we've got a few comments asking you know where's the visuals um are we coming back with the visuals um this animation's repetitive uh basically we just wanted to kind of note that we got we wanted to get phil involved with this series and we thought that the uh a little looping animation of us talking would be a lot more interesting than having just a still for the episode we know it's a loop we're not expecting someone to sit there and watch the 15 seconds repeat a thousand times uh we obviously know that it's not exactly the same and we're not, we never thought, oh, this will, this will be more interesting than having our visual video on it and pictures and stuff like that. We just thought it'd be a fun way of kind of mixing it up. So uh, we hope, you know, people aren't too um, deterred after see, seeing the fact that we changed that over and hope they understand we have released a video uh, explaining why we've gone to audio only. And we appreciate people who obviously support that. As we said, never say never, we may, we may be coming back with visual content for the main, uh, main episodes as well. But for now... For this series, audio only is the way we are going. That being said, we are still, uh, you know, uh, firing on all cylinders over on icmap.co.uk. Uh, so uh, we do weekly minisodes on there, which are visual and audio. We also do a monthly episode of AI Karumba. Uh, episode number two of that has just come out, and I believe we're on about 119 episodes over on, uh, on, on the website. So, How easy to sign up? Must be free then. Is it free? It's not free, unfortunately. Oh. You know, the best things in life aren't. Um, oh. Yeah. Did you... But free is a magic number. <laughs> but by going over there and signing up, joining the cult, uh, not only do you get all those amazing extra minisodes, you also get our main channel episodes three days early uh, and ad-free, waffle-free. So uh, head over to icmap.co.uk. We're doing a discount for the rest of July. So why not get yourself a cheeky discount? So this week's case is the case of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, making a murderer, the murder of Teresa Holbeck, the Mansawalk murders, and maybe just for this episode, I was thinking, debating a murderer, <laughs> baby. That's good. Yeah, I just thought that was what. Um, so, yeah. That, that... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so yes, that that is the other names of the case. But yeah, I think most people will know as Stephen Avery and the Making a Murderer. Uh, but Brendan Dassey is very much involved in this case. Or is he? Uh, yeah. But yes, Ben, do you want to set the scene? Or this is not really setting the scene, it's more just about you. We've got a bit of a summary here, though, a little bit of nice, interesting bits for the true crime audience, so isn't it? It's nice. Uh, so for me, yeah, this, as we've alluded to at the start of the episode... <laughs> this interesting bits for me. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, then. But yeah, as we mentioned, as Dan mentioned, as Tom mentioned, this was the first real, for a lot of people, big true crime series um, that, that came out and that people got hooked on. Um, for me... I think it was the Paradise Lost series, but Tom, I think for you, was it the Jinx that you saw first? No. It's the serial podcast. Yeah, in audio sense, I probably serial was out very early, early on for me. But in terms of visual true crime, I don't think it was Making Murder was my first one. That's the one that really sticks out to watching the whole thing and binging. I remember this one, my, my whole family and a load of friends, we were pinging around different theories about innocent or guilty. At the time, yeah, based on that documentary, it's hard to go away and not think anything but innocent. Uh, but yeah, it really inspired Netflix's uh, provision of true crime series forever. As Tom mentioned, they've kind of uh, shortened and condensed their series since then um but yeah they had the old lengthy high production intros the distorted whiny string soundtrack i think that's the correct audio description dan isn't it there you go yeah the drone shots the junkyard montages um i love it absolutely love it but yeah just for some timeline uh, context paradise lost yeah. uh, or west of memphis 1996 to 2012 the staircase was filmed in 2004 but it didn't make its way uh, to Netflix until 2018, which but they surprised shot, I mean, me. Those staircases they shot in two different parts, didn't they? Uh, do you mean they the, jumped forward about like a decade? Oh uh, yeah, but they initially when they started it in 2004, I think they were going to some American provider rather than like a global streaming service. So that some people saw it back then. Serial podcast 2014, but obviously that was audio only, and that's a touchy subject at the moment. Um, the Jinx. February 2015 and Making a Murderer December 2015 so 2015 a good year for uh, visual true crime content for sure for sure and if people who haven't Jinx seems to be one that a lot of people haven't seen but highly recommend it it's very it's very some bits I think a bit over the top in terms of production but other bits very very interesting indeed um, yeah I think somewhere between Making a Murderer and the Jinx you, you'd probably get close to the perfect true mm. crime series I liked Evil Genius the old um, I fucking hated that one Huh? Wow, we are off. We are not on the same page today. No, today. We, we're, we're different libraries, Ben. I mean, not quite often we are. Um, you're one of those little libraries, you know, the little telephone boxes they've tried to re repurpose. But yeah, a homeless man's gone in there and pissed on some of the books. Oh. I'm in Cambridge University, top there, books, first editions. Oh my God, George Roswell, first edition. I'm there. How has he um, done you with, with libraries? <laughs> I know. Not just done me once, though. Like, that was several. Dan nearly choked in his McDonald's there. I did. Um, <laughs> But the reason I don't like that one yeah. is it says at the start, the, the cover of it says evil genius. It has a picture of the woman on it. And then, it's, and then it does a whole thing of like, who's the evil genius? It's like, what's the f***ing picture of her at yeah, the beginning? That's yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what annoyed me about it. So the debate surrounding Stephen Avery and his nephew, Brendan Dassey, as well as their controversial trial and subsequent conviction for the 2005 murder of photographer Teresa Halbach, still rages on almost 20 years after the matter. Innocent supporters argue that Avery and Dassey were framed by law enforcement due to Avery's prior wrongful conviction, which resulted in him serving 18 years for a crime he has proven not to have committed, and a potential motive involving a lawsuit against the county. They also point to alleged evidence tampering, corrupt Manitowoc County officials, and coercive interrogation tactics. 
Whilst believers of the guilt of Avery and Dassey maintain that the evidence against the pair, including DNA and physical traces, is compelling and sufficient for conviction, today's case gained almost global attention due to the Netflix documentary series Making a Murderer, which sparked public debate about flaws in the criminal justice system and the possibility of Avery and Dassey's innocence. Though many insist that the documentary was thoroughly and unapologetically biased. I was just thinking as you were saying that, Tom, is there anyone listening to this week's episode that hasn't seen the series out there? There's going to be a few, isn't there? Maybe? I just heard someone say me, me. Oh, I haven't seen it. Me, me. Um, oh, perfect. <laughs> and I'm just saying to that little chap on the bus, when you get home from work today after you finish your shift, have a little watch, pop it on. It is drawn out uh, and it's very biased. But make your own, Gary, just think think about it yourself. Think outside I enjoyed boxes. it, Gary. You'll, yeah. you'll enjoy it too. Yeah, if I know Gary, you'll enjoy it. But you'll <laughs> probably be on his phone for most of it. Like, yeah, carrying his piss-covered books. So to provide balance and get some more argumentative juices flowing from the off, here are two highly conflicting quotes. We'll start with Stephen Avery. I ain't gonna give up. When you know you're innocent, you keep on going. I'm a decent guy. I get along with everyone. Except Manitowoc County. A little bit of fun there from him. He did a little bit of a joke there. Get with everyone. <laughs> Apart from the police are bloody arresting me again. <laughs> and then we move to Manitowoc County Sheriff Ken Peterson. If we wanted to eliminate Stephen... It would have been a whole lot easier to eliminate Stephen than to frame Stephen. Or if we wanted him killed, it would be much easier just to kill him. Which is quite a, quite a thing for a sheriff to say. Yeah, and if you put that into the context of some people believing the victim in this case may have been uh, killed by police. Oof. Mm. It's just one of them. Uh, um, yeah, that's, that's some big words. Big words. But let's jump into it. I'm excited for this week's episode. Here we go. Stephen Allen Avery was born on the 9th of July 1962 in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. Meaning, actually, I did some, some looking into this, boys, you'll like this. This episode will be released a day after his 61st birthday. He was the second born son to Allen and Dolores Avery, having an older brother called Charles, who goes by Chuck, and a younger brother called Earl. Uh, and he also has a younger sister called Barbara. She might go by Barb or something like that. She might, go, she might well Bar? go by Barb, yeah, or Chuck Ara. and Barb. Interesting little uh, Avery sort of family there because you've got Alan A, Barbara B, Chuck C, Dolores D, and E. Oh, but Stephen out of yeah, the blue there. A, B, C, D, E. Did you notice that one? Just, yeah, just as I was doing it then, I was like, oh, Ooh. wow. Yeah. But Stephen out, yeah. Ooh. yeah the well, Avery, it's really I thought spooky, you'd, isn't it? you'd probably call them the bird names, would be better. Yeah. If it was me, it'd be calling my son Robin. Uh, my daughter, Blue Tit. And my other son, just pigeon. Why do pigeons keep coming up? <laughs> so the Avery family initially resided in the city of Two Rivers, Wisconsin, but later moved to the small town of Gibson, Wisconsin in 1965, where they own and to date operate the now infamous Avery's Auto Salvage Company, which is actually set up nicely on Avery Road. Now, Manitowoc, which rests right by Lake Michigan, is 170 miles north of Chicago and 80 miles north of Milwaukee. So... In case you didn't pick up from the, the series itself, you do get a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer sounding uh, folks throughout this case. A little bit of an interesting one for you. Not not the facts, but right off the bat, the city of Two Rivers, I was my ears pricked up when I heard that, uh, claims to be the birthplace of the ice cream sundae. And there's a bit of a heated, not the actual ice cream wars, but there's a little mini Sunday feud here. Um, Ed Berner's ice cream parlor began serving ice cream covered in chocolate sauce but only on Sundays, and they claim that that is what created the ice cream sundae. Yeah. However, many argue that ice cream sundaes were created and served in Ithaca, New York, in 1882. 
And that was basically this pharmacy served a priest a scoop of vanilla ice cream in a champagne saucer topped with a cherry and cherry syrup. And he was, uh, the, the priest was, I don't know why he wasn't working, this priest, but um, he yeah, was... He his time off, can't he? Well, yeah, I know, but not on a Sunday. Oh, well, this sermon. He's like, oh, God, that's a good, that's a lot's work done. And he's going to wash down all those prayers. <laughs> yeah, imagine. that actually could have happened. Um, and he was so impressed by the treat and the uh, the look of it, the taste of it, that it became Cherry Sunday, which later became Ice Cream Sunday. So big rivalry between Two Rivers and Ithaca, which uh, kind of still rages on to date. Well, I'm banana split in terms of who, who actually came up with it. <laughs> There's hundreds and thousands of different opinions. Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, sorry, Ben, as well. She's, uh, you know, not trying to already start off a little tussle here in terms of, you know, coming up with interesting facts and trivia. But uh, I just wondered if you know where the name Manitowoc what actually comes from or what it actually means. I haven't got a clue, but I'm, you know, I'm keen to know. Well, it's, it's a Native American uh, name, which is, you know, it sounds like it probably would be, but it means home of the good spirit. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, which is quite warm, and I like that. If you live in an area like, basically, if you lived in a place called Casper, it'd, it'd be, um, yeah, similar kind of. Similar kind of vibe. Yeah, and actually, speaking about the the biases of this documentary series, I thought Manitowoc looked like a really rough area, but when you actually look, it's gorgeous. Sat by the lake, blue skies, ice cream sundae. There you go. Don't know which library to go to. Wrongful convictions, allegedly. (laughs) Delicious. Yeah, it looks really nice. Have a great day, Reverend. (laughs) You just clarify, that isn't Tommy's trivia. That was just a little, little right hook to Ben Stewart early on. But because um, I felt like he kind of did a warm up for the interesting facts, but not really. Stephen's parents, Alan and Dolores, married shortly after they met at the mere age of 16. Too young. Not long after this, the pair purchased a piece of barren farmland together. Alan decided to get into the salvage business in 1965, having come from a line of engineers and mechanics, whilst Dolores looked after and raised their children on the property. Alan turned what was once a wheat farm into a giant repository for junked cars, motorcycles and trucks. He offered repair services, salvage services and tow-in services. The four Avery children, Chuck, Stephen, Barbara and Earl, were raised on the family's 40-acre auto-salvage junkyard. Imagine that as a playground. Yeah, this is fun. I'm just trying out the horns today, ma. That'd be annoying. Long, lot of horns. Yeah, a lot of horns. A lot of horns to be... Um, played with there the day-to-day of which was run by the parents alan and dolores though an update on dolores she sadly passed away in july of 2021 of dementia aged 83 yes yeah, i think she became the most sort of sympathetic character in that whole series a lot of um people had a soft spot for her mm. the avery children absolutely loved their home environment and would have endless amounts of fun playing in amongst the vehicles that lay scattered on the fields of the property it does look quite it's very rustic isn't it it's very uh yeah outskirts of america like i don't know how to describe it well this is it when i saw other photos of manitowoc i was like wow this place is beautiful but the yeah the the, the opening credits the montage makes it very mm. sort of sinister they regularly played hide and seek and also would go in the cars and pretend to race each other, the cars against one another using their imaginations they had their own little community and their own little world that sounds nice they had the critics about being yeah teet teet what a uh, beep beep not teet yeah. teet sorry um but yeah i uh, yeah, the idea of being raised on a junkyard, I think that's tit, more... Pl- <laughs> that's not a car. Get out. Get off. Get off it. Yeah. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make the bacon. Get off me. Whilst a lot of the children across Manitowoc County were raised in middle class to working class open communities, playing in the park and round each other's houses, a young Stephen Avery would bask in the fact that he got to explore and play in a junkyard every single day after school. And a lot of the working class families in Manitowoc, there are also a lot of other farms. Uh, it's a big countryside sort of area where the Avery's uh, auto salvage yard is, is based. Um, 
but uh, the Averys were very much standouts to the rest of the farming communities out there. So they obviously dealt in junk and their auto salvage business was even located, as we mentioned, on Avery Road, which is actually just on the outskirts of town. So they were considered outsiders. Um, literally and um, figuratively um, but they were said to not dress like everybody else and didn't have an education like everybody else in the community and they were never actively involved or interested in any other kind of community activities or anything going on outside their own property they kept themselves to their own little sort of close-knit community and that was enough for the Averys on being raised in a junkyard Stephen said growing up with all them cars you know it was pretty fun tearing them apart fixing them running around in the trails in the rows of the cars once we had a car up there in the back, with the motor out and everything else, and we had a bed back there, and we had a battery in it, so we could listen to the radio, talk, goof around. You know, I had a nice childhood. The Avery children attended various schools in Manitowoc and Michicot, where they would, each for different reasons, pick up a bit of a reputation for being mischievous. mischievous. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Quite, you know. It's in quotation marks. Pick up a bit of a reputation for being mischievous. mischievous. He's done me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Pick up a bit of a reputation for being mischievous and troublesome. Some of Stephen and Chuck's teachers would note that the boys would regularly misbehave and disobey orders to the point that they were almost expelled from school on multiple occasions. Dolores and Alan were also advised to consider homeschooling the boys if their unruly behaviour continued. Uh, now Stephen's mother Dolores actually said that whilst many of her children would regularly misbehave at school, none of them struggled with their education quite as much as Stephen did. As a result, Stephen was sent to what Dolores described as, quote, a school for slower kids, where he was found to have an IQ of just 70. Uh, now, this is considered two standard deviations below the mean, which put Stephen at the second percentile, basically meaning that roughly 98% of the American population at the time would have had an IQ higher than Stephen. And one relative stated that he, quote, barely functioned in a school environment. So as is clear, Stephen struggled academically and faced possible learning difficulties, which led him to being placed in special education classes. He attended local schools in the Manitowoc County area, including Manitowoc Lutheran High School. Stephen's cousin, Kim DeCat, said the following of a young Stephen. The people that were close to Steve knew he was harmless. He was always happy, happy, happy. Always laughing, always wanting to make other people laugh. I think people outside the community just viewed him as an Avery. They viewed him as a troublemaker. You know... There goes another Avery. They're all trouble. During his teenage years, Avery lived in the fairly modest trailer on the family property. The Avery Salvage Yard, a business owned by his family, was a significant part of his life. As he grew older, he became more and more immersed in the family trade. He became involved in the dismantling and recycling of vehicles, which exposed Stephen to the automotive industry and mechanics from a young age. The salvage yard provided Stephen with something that school seemingly never could. He got hands-on experience and skills in vehicle repair and restoration. He developed a passion for working on cars and restoring them, gaining a reputation as a competent mechanic and vehicle enthusiast within the local community. The Averys had a very strong sense of family and would always look out for one another and stick together. 
They supported each other through financial difficulties, emotional difficulties, legal difficulties and local disputes, the latter of which would get them into trouble from time to time. On the 20th of October 1979, when Stephen was just 17 years old, he was arrested for burglary after breaking into a tavern with a friend. They stole two cheese sandwiches, cigarettes, two six-packs of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer and some cash that they found on a side table. Stephen and his friend were reprimanded, let off with a warning and made to pay a small fine. The following year, he was arrested once again for burglary after he broke into the Northern Frontier Bar, which was located at Harps Lake. Stephen broke into the building by smashing a rear window and crawling through it. Once inside, he then cut the power to the property to avoid any kind of alarm going off and opened a side door so that he had easy access to his vehicle. He then stole over a dozen packaged beef sticks, which is from the police report. I assume that's jerky. Yeah. Yeah. Or kind of like pepperoni alternative back yeah. in the day, I imagine. Yeah, so he stole over a dozen of those. Probably just put them under his arm. Yeah, or in a pocket or something. Yeah, or in a pocket or something, yeah. Several bottles of whiskey, two crates of Budweiser, a toolbox, uh, which was painted red, and $14 from the cash register, all of which he quickly stowed in his car. On this particular incident, Stephen said, I really ain't got much on my record. Two burglaries with my friends. We just rode around looking for something to do, and we decided to rob a tavern in that. It's the first time I got busted with them friends. For this, Stephen was convicted and sentenced to serve two years at Manitowoc County Jail. He was released on probation after serving 10 months of this sentence and ordered to pay over $3,000 in restitution. Despite this relatively short prison sentence, Stephen still hung around with a bad crowd and his bad behaviours continued to escalate. Another mistake I did. I had a bunch of friends over and we were fooling around with the cat. And I don't know. They were kind of negging it on and I tossed him over the fire and he lit up. You know, it was the family cat. I was young and stupid, hanging around with the wrong people. So what Stephen is referring to there is, is a 1982 house party on the Avery Yard. He and two friends were having beers by a bonfire whilst listening to music, which sounds quite like a nice little scene. That sounds lovely, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but when they noticed that Avery's family cat walking up to rest by the fire. Again, nice scene. Nice cat. A little chill out there. Apparently, according to the two other men's testimony at Stephen's request, they threw Stephen's cat, quote, in a bonfire and then watched it burn until it died. But only after Stephen had personally lathered the cat in gas and oil. The cat unfortunately would go on to pass away and Stephen was later found guilty of animal cruelty and jailed for a year. So this is, okay, so this is one of the things that I was going to bring up in terms of very much gloss over in the, in the, in the documentary. Casually mentions, you know, the murder of an animal, which is... Um, he likes to say, oh, well, you know, we're just tossing it over the fire and then, it, it, you know, just lug, they're throwing it over the fire in his story. And then, it, you know, it, won, it caught fire and then, you know, sadly it kind of fell into the fire and then we couldn't do anything. So he, he very much says it's not his, his fault. It's, he, he doesn't take responsibility for it. But then there's been other testimony to say, you know, he douses it in gasoline yeah. and then he throws it, he's throwing it in there, which, you know, like we've many a time in a, in a lot of our cases, starts off with animal cruelty killing animals torturing animals i mean this is a very fucking brutal way of killing an animal um i don't think that's something you can blame being young and stupid on no i did something when i was young and stupid i hit a golf ball through a neighbor's window and i tried to get away with it I tried to hide i quickly turned all the yeah, he killed the parrot <laughs> but it was it was getting quite late i had uh, i was practicing with no net and chipped it straight in front of the back neighbor's uh, bathroom w window. Glass was very loud, shatter. 
So I quickly ran inside and turned all the lights off. My parents were out. And then my dad took me to football the next morning and his mobile started going. It was my mum. The guy came around and there were like fluorescent orange balls. Um, and he came around with it and my mum answered, I got, I, got, uh, I got an earful then. I yeah. bet you did. And he had a dead parrot in the other arm. <laughs> but yeah, I agree with you. I, this is not just something that they do gloss over this moment. It's like a 10-15 really second segment yeah. and that's it. Cause it, does, it doesn't fit the narrative. I mean, yeah. it's very trouble, troubling the idea of, you know, it's a family pet as well. It, not that it would be any better if it was a stray, but there's a family pet, which they would, you know, the family would have loved as well. And he's mm-hmm. gone on to do this and very bleak. For all of these crimes, Stephen immediately pled either guilty or no contest. And though he made a number of considerably poor decisions, he would, according to family members, always own up to them and admit his wrongdoings. Interestingly, Stephen has an uncle, uh, the lesser-mentioned Arland Avery, who is a retired Manitowoc Sheriff's deputy, but it is also argued online that he was, quote, low-level patrolman. He is one of the few family members that didn't work on the family yard, and one of even fewer that refused to get involved with the later media attention that followed. I guess he could feel very convi- com- conflicted yeah. and split there. Because that's it. The documentary also doesn't mention that they have an uncle in law enforcement. They're always mm. like, oh, they're, they're out to get him, they're out to get him. Mm. They framed him, but they've got... One of the Averys is a boy in blue. I think it's more like a kind of brownie, um, beigey colour there. Sorry. Yeah. He always did his best, apparently, to keep Stephen out of trouble. He has made claims to support both the innocence and guilt of Stephen and Brendan. Uh, However, he retired before any of the events that we um, will just go on to discuss in the timeline. During the same year of the cat incident, age 19, Stephen met single mother Laurie Matheson, who was from the Manitowoc area as well. On meeting Laurie, Stephen said, She was pretty. Beautiful. That's what I thought. She had a good head on her shoulders. She was making it on her own. She had Jason. Jason was just a baby. She told me that his father didn't want nothing to do with him. So I says, I'll take over then. Family's partway made. So, well, I might as well give it a shot. Stephen and Laurie got married on the 24th of July 1982 at a local Manitowoc registry office. After the service, Laurie's parents threw a small wedding party in their garage for the newlyweds. Which I thought, I don't, I've never heard of that before. Must, but they have big garages in America, don't they? It probably depends on, it depends garage to garage. But yeah, I imagine if they're doing a party there, it must be fairly sizable, right? The, uh, the pair, the, the newlyweds were completely in love with one another, despite Laurie's family not completely approving of Stephen or the Avery family. I think from what I was able to gather from this, she was obviously a, a single mother and Stephen came around and wanted to play a part in both of their lives. He was very young himself, but he seemed like he had good intentions. So they, they didn't necessarily approve of the Avery family, um, but they felt that Stephen was okay for their daughter. Uh, the pair's financial uh, situation was also in a very poor state. Laurie was not working at the time, and Stephen had a fairly low income from work on the scrapyard. So they moved into a small trailer on the Avery Salvage Yard, together with baby Jason. Though unfortunately, the adjustments to marriage and family life was not enough to sway Stephen's negative behaviours. So Stephen had to serve a prison sentence for the incident we mentioned earlier with the cat, which meant that he was not present for the birth of his first child, a baby called Rachel, though he was present after later being released for the birth of Jenny, his second daughter. Together, Stephen, Laurie, Jason, Rachel and Jenny, as well as their pet dog Rex, thought they had their lives figured out. During the early hours of January 2nd, 1985, 1985. quite a... 1985. During the early... <laughs> 
During the early hours of January 2nd, 1985, quite a peculiar incident occurred between Stephen and his cousin, Sandy Morris. Now, Sandy, according to Stephen, had been spreading rumours around town about him, claiming that he was regularly masturbating on the front lawn as well as the front road of the Avery Salvage Yard. Uh, and this rumour, alleged rumour, uh, infuriated Stephen as he claimed that it was not true. He saw her vehicle slowly pass the property at around 5am when he was out walking his dogs. So he put the dogs back in, got in his car and decided to follow her. And again, the documentary kind of glosses over this moment, but this is terrible behaviour and the masturbating on the property as well, if he did that, I've I don't know. To, I've got some bits to add to this. You carry sure, on, boy. okay. You carry on, so Stephen gets in his car, it's a cold winter's morning, dark, he drives immediately after his cousin. He then veered into the side of her vehicle and clipped her to the side of the road. He then pulled, again according to Stephen, an unloaded gun and begins to threaten her, saying that he would kill his cousin if she kept spreading rumours about him. Now, unfortunately for Stephen, Sandy was married to a Manitowoc Sheriff's deputy, so her testimony and the, the, the witness statement was made to heighten her potential danger and Stephen's murderous threats. So... Again, the documentary makes this seem like it's everyone against him, but I mean, he's technically just drove his cousin off the road and put a gun to her. Yeah, so I heard her testimony. Obviously, it's her testimony, her word against his, but apparently the masturbation was he, he got basically got out of the house and did it to her on the front yard toward her car when she went past. So he literally flashed her and was doing the action toward her. She would go on to tell a few people about what happened in the incident, obviously thinking it's your cousin, thinking, you know, that's a very bizarre behaviour. Um, and yeah, he got annoyed with the fact that she basically would go on to reveal that. And then, yeah, threatening a cousin to kill her for essentially, you know, letting that, that out. Also shows that, you know, he's got very odd behavior, very odd sexual behavior in, in, in doing that behavior as well. And a couple solid red flags there for Stephen. I wonder the whole time you were saying that how fast she was driving past when he did it. Like if it's really fast, he'd have to also be really fast. Whereas Are you thinking, was, like, say so you would, you'd be on the front lawn start wanking a while beforehand just in case a cousin goes past and then you're about ready to, to burst when they get past so you can try right. and like you're like no no it's just was... bird shit <laughs> is that what you mean no i was just it, I, in my mind obviously it's it's sort of a dirty country road sometimes people can go fast down there so if he you know if he suddenly sees her appear and he has to be really quick then you know that's immediate action isn't it but if, if it's a slow sort of 10 miles an hour then he's going to be there for ages i don't know if uh it, it definitely doesn't say um if he, if he was erect or if it was a uh... right so yeah unfortunately for Stephen, sandy was uh, as we mentioned married to a sheriff's deputy um so they take uh, her statement they interview Stephen, and as a result he was sentenced to serve six years in prison for the possession of a firearm which again he claims was unloaded but there was no evidence to support that endangering safety regardless of life and this is a new one endangering safety while evincing a depraved mind uh, now many people allege that this case was all a ploy to make an example of one of the Averys obviously as a six-year sentence um, but I don't know I think you don't run someone off the road and put a gun in their face without no. thinking you're gonna get sent to prison for it so yeah so while Stephen was on uh, out on bail for this crime, Laurie gave birth to two twin boys, Stephen Jr. and William, and they both, they look a lot like him. Stephen felt that for him, his life was now set. Uh, now a family of seven, Stephen, Laurie, Jason, Rachel, Jenny, Stephen Jr. and William moved into a much larger trailer on the Avery Yard, next door to Stephen's sister, Barb. These were the happiest moments of Stephen's life. 
I think I had a good life till all the trouble started. I don't want to be a criminal. I want to be normal. Well, put your penis away, Stephen. So that was a bit of uh, a background on Stephen. And now we're going to talk about his nephew, who, as uh, we're going to go on to discuss, plays perhaps the most pivotal role in this whole case. Brendan Ray Dassey was born on October 19th, 1989 in Mantawak County, Wisconsin, meaning that he is currently 33 years old at the time of recording. Brendan is the youngest of four sons born to Barbara, Stephen's sister, and Peter Dassey. Having three older brothers, Brian, Bobby, and Blaine. It's everybody going with the bee theme there, aren't they? Yeah. So they, they're more bees in a hive. Uh, he also has a half-brother from Peter's side of the family called Brad. So Brendan, Brad, Brian, Bobby, and Blaine. Mm. And their mum, Barbara. Yeah, all the bees. I, don't, I knew someone in the family that all the family began with Ks. Okay. That's a lot. I've got, I could guess Katie, Chris... Kevin Karen. I think one of those right. Brendan's parents, Peter and Barbara, divorced when he was young after their relationship became physically abusive. Barbara then began seeing another man named Tom Jander, who she quickly married after the divorce of Peter was finalised. But this relationship was also unsuccessful and filled with a number of tumultuous moments. In 2005, Barbara was in the middle of divorcing Tom Jander when she met and began dating Scott Tadich, who she later married and remains married to. Brendan was initially raised in a small rural community called Mishicot which is in Manitowoc County. However, the Dassey home was far too small for the family of seven, so they eventually moved into a large trailer located on the end of the Avery Auto Salvage, which is referred to as the Long Road section. The family's trailer was located next to Brendan's uncle Stephen. Brendan has been described as an extremely introverted, shy child, who some of the Avery and Dassey family considered may have been born mute during his early years. Brendan often struggled to make and maintain eye contact and his verbal communication was heavily delayed in comparison to the rest of the Avery and Dassey children. Like his uncle Stephen, Brendan was tested to show an extremely low IQ of a borderline deficiency range, which meant that he also had to be enrolled into a special education school. And despite these similarities to his uncle, Brendan did not have any kind of criminal record with the exception of some tellings off at school. Throughout his childhood, Brendan attended Michicot High School, where he was known to have been evaluated for special educational needs. He had, as we mentioned, a below-average IQ and faced numerous challenges in various areas of his academic performance. Brendan struggled with social interactions as well and was often described as introverted and socially awkward. According to accounts from family and friends, he only really had a close bond with his mother and siblings. Although he did go out and go to various wrestling events across different counties with a small group of friends, though he mainly would stick to his family. During his early years, Brendan also enjoyed exploring the Avery salvage yard, though he had no interest in the mechanical aspects like many of the other grandchildren did. Instead, he would enjoy wrecking and pulling apart different vehicles to help his family. Though there isn't a great deal of information about his childhood available, he was known to have a fondness for animals, often being pictured with family dogs. He also enjoyed spending time with his family, and he also liked rock music. Brendan had a very small, close-knit circle of friends with whom he would play video games, listen to music, watch television, and attend local pro wrestling events with. He was a big fan of WWE, and would often watch their weekly television shows and monthly pay-per-views. And uh, as I'm sure people familiar with the case will know, there's obviously a lot of later memes made about his desire to watch WrestleMania 22. In multiple episodes of the documentary series Making a Murderer, one lawyer refers to Brendan as slow, whilst another describes him as intellectually limited. Another argues in Brendan's defence, don't convict him because he couldn't pick his parents. 
Despite never officially being diagnosed, many believe that Brendan has learning disabilities and some have speculated that he is also on the autistic spectrum. Investigator Michael O'Kelly, who did some research into the Avery family history as part of Brendan's latest defence team, had quite a staunch and scathing summary of them. I am learning the Avery family history and about each member of the Avery family. These are criminals. There are members engaged in sexual activity with nieces, nephews, cousins, in-laws. These people are pure evil. A friend of mine suggested, this is a one-branch family tree. Cut this tree down. We need to end the gene pool here. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is... Uh... So for some context, this was at a point where later in the trial, they try and basically pin Stephen as the, the ringleader and the Avery family very much as corrupting Brendan. Um, but yeah, when I, as soon as I saw that, I thought, wow, that is scathing. We should point out, much like Michael O'Kelly suggests, there are many rumours that Stephen and other members of his family would regularly involve themselves in acts of incest. It's been speculated heavily online that Stephen had sex on a regular basis with his niece, the daughter of his brother Earl, Marie Avery, who, in a police interview, told investigating detectives that she'd been raped by Uncle Stephen while she was underage, and while Stephen was also in a relationship with Jodie. So again... Another big red flag. And I'm sure this wasn't mentioned in the... Unless I'm remembering wrong, I don't remember this being in the documentary. No, the I mean... niece. Like, I, th- I think the documentary, you know, they probably didn't dig into that side of things as, as much as, you know, a lot of people were like. Documentaries are always going to lean one way or the other. Very rarely they're straight down the middle, even if they try and claim to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got sexual violence now. You've got, well him wanking towards a car allegedly well i believe they did it from i mean the cat was proven um i believe this niece so two out of the three i'm i'm with you on yeah i think he did that on the road i so. don't know i don't know that I, I do feel like that why is she, a bit why is, suspect even well even just her random him do you believe that he rammed her off the road and threatened her with a gun well he, he admitted that he admitted so, that so i'm not defending that but the only bit you don't believe is he could possibly be wanking in his garden no I don't, I'm, I'm not i don't want to say i'm warming to that idea because that would be the wrong way to word it. But no, it, I am t- I am sort of tuning in to that being a possibility. You're getting a grasp of that, that idea. No, no grasp over here. No? Never. There are several reports of Stephen admitting he had sex with Marie, but that it was consensual. There are also several reports of Stephen denying that they ever had sex. So yeah, not a, not a great witness there, Stephen. Even if it was consensual, it's your niece. Yeah. Well, it's not my niece, it's his niece. That's his niece, yeah, of course, yeah. And on that note, upon further research into the Avery family dynamic, many of the male members of the Avery family have a criminal history, much of which is of a sexual nature. So Charles, the oldest brother, has been charged with third-degree sexual assault, disorderly conduct, domestic abuse, harassment and stalking. Harassment and stalking. Harassment. Harassment says... Earl Avery, the younger... Stop harassing me! <laughs> Stop harassing my ass. Earl Avery, the younger brother, has been charged with battery, fourth-degree sexual assault, and the battery of his two daughters. Earl was also charged in 2011 for videotaping children and adults as they changed in the bathroom cubicle during a pool party. So both of these brothers, Earl and Charles, or Chuck as he goes by, have got a string of sexual offences, and Earl himself... The, char- the fourth degree sexual assault is on his own two daughters, which is just absolutely horrific. So both of Stephen's brothers basically had a history of sexual crimes. And you can kind of, again, the, the documentary avoids all of this, but you can kind of put that alongside what Stephen is accused of. Does the apple fall too far from the tree then? Is the question. The dad isn't a 
there's not nothing mean to speculate about the dad being involved in any uh, sexual crimes, is there? I have, yeah, I couldn't find anything on Alan. Well, like um, we've been told, the apparently it's just a one branch tree, so the apple wouldn't mm. fall too far away. It would exactly, unless it's on a hill or um, a grassy knoll, or I guess near the edge of a cliff. So at school, much like his uncles, Brendan had a history of disciplinary issues and was involved in minor incidents such as theft and vandalism of school property on multiple occasions. These encounters with law enforcement, although relatively minor, uh, and basically they just uh, resulted in Brendan receiving a bit of a telling off, would later become significant in the context of his own involvement in the Teresa Halbach murder case. Brendan was just 16 years old when he and his uncle Stephen's involvement in that particular murder case would come into question. And it is here that we move to the timeline of the case of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. So as we've mentioned at this point, Stephen has been arrested on uh, three separate occasions, the first for burglary, the second for animal cruelty, and the third for endangering safety while evincing a depraved mind uh, in the uh, the attack on his cousin. Um, so he's, he's gained somewhat of a criminal record here. Um, he's also acted in kind of, well, he's, he's engaged in burglary, animal cruelty, and now almost assault, I guess, to the point of threatening... Is is the, would you consider that attempted murder? Driving her off the road and pointing a gun at her? I mean, it could lead to it, couldn't it? I mean, it's very, yeah. it's a dangerous act. The thing as well, I mean, to very much point out here, he's very much stained his reputation. Yes. In the local area, people know him um, for being very, you know, can fly off the handle easily. Um, Loose cannon. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, he's got that reputation, and this is where that reputation is going to place him in a lot of hot water. 29th of July, 1985. A woman in her 30s is attacked whilst jogging along a beach in Lake Michigan. She is a married mother of two, and her name is Penny Bernstein. When her attacker first approaches her, she isn't initially panicked. The man has a large leather jacket on, which is odd for that time of year, and has sandy blonde hair. He shouts at her something about the weather, but Penny continues with her run. Penny runs for a bit longer and decides to head back. She normally runs for about 45 minutes. On her way back, she sees the man again, but this time he starts running towards her. Penny is terrified and tries to outrun her attacker, but he catches up to her. He grabs her and drags her into a more secluded part of the beach. He begins to unzip his trousers. At the first available opportunity, Penny kicks her attacker in the groin. According to Penny, the attacker then said, Now I'm going to kill you. Now you're going to die. The man repeatedly kicked and punched Penny until she was knocked unconscious. He grabs her and drags her into a more secluded part of the beach, into more of a wooded area. Penny's husband, who is waiting for her on the beach, becomes immediately worried when his wife hasn't returned in an hour. He calls the police. Meanwhile, Penny is trying to get help. She sees a couple walking along the beach. The couple runs over and assists Penny in getting up. At this point, Penny's husband and a member of the police see Penny, and she is immediately taken to a hospital. Whilst in hospital, Penny is treated for significant injuries. Within a few hours, she is asked by police about the identity of the attacker. She told the police that the attacker had blue eyes, dirty blonde hair, and was around 5'6 to 5'8. Police instantly thought of Stephen Avery, despite his brown eyes. Which is, that is dodgy in itself, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's quite, picking up the eye colour in that kind of situation as well, it's, it's a key feature to kind of notice. Julie Dvorak, a close friend of Sandy Morris, who is Stephen's uh, his cousin, told Penny that her attacker sounds like Stephen Avery. So yeah, this is the, the first part of the uh, this series that you immediately become a little bit suspicious on. And to be fair, it's I, I find this part hard to argue, but maybe you've got something. Uh, so there's a guy called Eugene Cush, um, who is a uh, composite artist, a uh, police sketch artist. Now he draws a picture that is remarkably 
uh, similar to Stephen Avery. And he actually, in fact, years later, has it hung in his office. Um, it's a framed image of a framed man, isn't it? What they say? They, like yeah. Now, he was interviewed in a later deposition. Um, and first of all, they ask him, well, why have you got this this sketch of Avery alongside a photo of his mugshot uh, hung in your in your office? And he said, it was my first drawing, my first composite. It was the only one I ever did that was used in a court case, and I thought it would make an interesting display in my office. Um, so the end result, his sketch, if you put it next to Avery, is almost identical, and he was saying it, le- it led to the successful conviction of Avery for this uh, this attack on uh, Penny, uh, Penny Bernstein. However, it was later revealed that um, Eugene Cush had actually had access to a mugshot of Stephen Avery from the cat uh, uh, arrest, the the cat, the animal abuse arrest. So he's literally, it's, it's, he's gets very, very defensive and protective of his drawing when he's interviewed. But he's saying, you know, it, it, no, this is all wrong. He's not, you know, he's not an innocent man. My sketch looks more like him than this other guy. It has to be Stephen Avery. So yeah, so six hours after um, she's been attacked, she's giving this description to uh, Eugene. And he he's a very shady character in this this documentary, um, but a lot of people suggest that Kush had access to the mugshot, and he literally almost traced over it, leading to the uh, the frame. Six hours after her attack, Penny was then asked to give a description of her attacker to uh, Jean, uh, the sketch artist, who then drew a picture similar to that of Stephen Avery. Penny was then shown the photos of nine people, and after studying the pictures, she identified that Stephen Avery was her attacker. As a result, at midnight, Stephen Avery was arrested. The sheriff had requested that he was to be denied access to a phone call, which is illegal. So yeah, so first of all, the sheriff, uh, and this is the one that is related to Stephen's, or this is one that works directly with the sheriff's deputy that Stephen's cousin is married to, uh, denies giving Stephen access to make a phone call, which is illegal. So that's that's kind of suspicious to to play for both sides here. A few days after her attack, Penny receives a phone call from the person she assumes is her attacker. Uh, So this is again, whilst Stephen is in custody, it couldn't have been Stephen, he wasn't even allowed to make phone calls. The call has a sexual motive. Penny is terrified and calls the police again. For her reassurance, the police do a lineup, and Penny spends 10 minutes looking at the men in front of her in the one-way mirror. And again, there's quite an infamous picture here that's in the Netflix series. She identifies from this lineup Stephen Avery, who is the only person in the lineup who is in the photo identification. So again, they're suggesting that she was given this photo on purpose to study, and then all of a sudden he's here in person. Sticks in her mind, so she associates it, yeah. Exactly. Stephen's alibi was that he was working with his family at the time of the attack, and this is completely the opposite end of the state. However, with only family to corroborate his story, police find it difficult to believe they would not cover for him. He is found guilty and sentenced to 32 years in prison. So this was, yeah, this was some people viewed this as quite a harsh sentence for the attack of Penny. Others, um, others felt that it was a justified sentence. What did you think? I was somewhere in the middle. I believe in America as well that, you know, if you have, pre- have previous crimes before, that all adds up in terms of, you know, you've been let out. So if he, if he hadn't done the previous crimes, I don't imagine the sentencing would have been 32 years. Yes, in 1987, Stephen Avery appeals his conviction. His lawyers argue that logistically Stephen could not have committed the attack. A receipt shows that he was in Green Bay at 5.13pm. Later tests would indicate that the only way Stephen could have committed the attack and been at Green Bay for that time was if he drove in excess of 80 miles per hour after committing the offence. Yet a hair on one of his shirts was consistent with pennies, according to a state forensic expert. So I just had a little look. Green Bay, 
Wisconsin to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, that's not even getting you to the beach, is a 46-minute drive, 41 miles. So if he was there at that time, there's no way he could have been able to, even at that speed, there's no way he could have been there. But it's, yeah, that people allege again that one of his hairs may have been planted, um, as a few things may have been planted in this case. So yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, as well as this, Stephen had 16 different witnesses that could testify that he did not commit this sexual assault. Furthermore, Stephen did not own underwear. As well as this, so Penny stated in her testimony that her attacker had white underwear on, and it was later revealed that Stephen did not own any underwear. Uh, Stephen's own wife confirmed that he would not have owned this item of clothing. Around this same time that, uh, that, that Stephen has been sentenced, Laurie would file for divorce of the same year. She was struggling with her mental health after having her husband locked up for such a horrific crime. Letters between Stephen and Laurie show the breakdown of the marriage, and as a result, Laurie files for divorce and asks for sole custody of the children. So some of these letters as well are quite graphic about Stephen talking to his children and saying that your mum hates me, your mum does this, your mum does that, and blaming, uh, blaming Laurie for quite a lot of uh, the circumstances that they find themselves in. So yeah, it's a, it's a really upsetting time. 1994. Further appeals protesting Stephen's innocence are denied, leaving Stephen locked up in prison despite mounting evidence that he could have not committed the crime. In 1995, Gregory Allen, who will become crucial to Stephen's innocence, is sentenced to 60 years in prison. Gregory Allen did look somewhat like Stephen Avery, both had dirty blonde hair. Gregory Allen was known to the police before the sexual assault of Penny. He had been previously convicted for three other offences relating to violence and drugs, and police did fear he would move on to sexually assaulting women. There had been complaints as well about him being on that particular stretch of beach before as well, and approaching different women, so he was known in that area mm. as being someone to avoid. 2001, the Wisconsin Innocence Project becomes involved in Stephen Avery's case. The Wisconsin Innocence Project reviews cases for those who have concrete evidence as to why they could not have committed a crime. The prisoner must have at least seven years left on their sentence, which is bizarre. That, like, if there's any less than that, that they're not going to look into it. So at this point now, the Wisconsin Innocence Project have become involved. Stephen has been locked up for 16 years um, for a crime. Uh, that there is plenty of evidence to suggest he did not commit or could not have committed. Yeah, and he had 16 years left on the on the uh, sentence, so that's why they could get involved. But as I said, if he had six years left, and, it was, and people were like, well, he's innocent, but he's less than seven, so that's a mad uh, rule there. 2002, uh, newly developed DNA evidence shows that Stephen did not commit the sexual assault on Penny Bernstein. An analysis is reconducted on two pubic hairs that were found on the victim. Stephen, uh, so this is this uh, particular pubic hair is found to have been from a third party. They run it through the system and this, beyond a doubt, proves that Stephen could not have been the attacker. And not only this, but when they run it through their system, it provides a cold match to another individual proving that Penny's attacker was Gregory Allen. At the time of the attack, he was under police surveillance. It just so happened that on this particular day, the police officers that were watching him were asked to go to a different job instead. And that's when Gregory Allen attacked Penny. Gregory Allen also fit Penny's original description. And just to note as well, Gregory Allen does have blue eyes, like uh, Penny originally said about um, when she was attacked. It has also come to light that back in 1985, Sheriff Tom Kukarek and District Attorney Dennis Vogel were made aware by colleagues about Gregory Allen. The two dismissed the claims and as a result, Penny's attacker was able to roam free for years. During that time, he sexually assaulted more women before his arrest. Gregory Allen had also allegedly admitted that he had committed a sexual assault within Manitowoc County and he knew someone else had been convicted for his crime. 
again, this claim that he made, I believe he made that whilst serving time, was never followed up. 11th of September 2003, Stephen Avery was released from prison after serving 18 years for an attack that he did not commit. Throughout his time in prison, he maintained his innocence as he did not admit to the crime. He was denied parole throughout this sentence, and when he arrived home, he was welcomed with open arms by the Averys. There's quite some infamous footage there of him with all the family, hugging, kissing. He's got a big old bushy beard now. What's that, sir? A great big bushy beard! Come on, let's have a mosey around. If you look at the picture of him before and after oh, at uh, prison yeah. as well, he's so youthful when he goes to prison, and now he looks uh, he looks pretty haunted. Um, and this is, this is how the um, Netflix series opens, isn't it? With that sort of scene of the car coming, and I just thought Tom and Dan... Oh. I thought that Netflix series is very interesting. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, you know, we we uh, we appreciate you guys. Um, we wanted to be a bit more, a little bit more on brand this week. So instead of uh, flashbangs and uh, bedwetting, today we're talking about Netflix. It's very relevant to today's case. Hoping Tommy's trivia isn't the same thing as this, but I'm looking forward to it. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hopefully not. But I listened to a very recent interview with Jerry Buting, who we'll talk about in a minute, one of Stephen Avery's lawyers uh, from the 2005 case. And he said the following. There are various academics that have actually tried to estimate how many innocent people are in prison in America. It varies anywhere from 2% to 8%. But even if we said it was 1%, there are currently almost 2 million prisoners serving time in America. That's 20,000 innocent people that are in prison for a crime they did not commit. At the moment, at a rate of 150 to 200 exonerations a year, the legal system for exonerations moves at a snail's pace, often taking students, journalists or filmmakers to help speed up the process. Many of these people that are in prison for a crime they did not commit are likely to die in prison before being released. Which I just thought, 20,000 innocent people. And I know I've done one on the Adnan Syed episode about wrongful conviction, so if you wanted, I was going to do a double, but I didn't do oh, that. No. That quote hit me quite hard, and I thought if this Netflix series hadn't been made, maybe this case would just not been on anyone's radar. Well, it wouldn't have been, would it? No. And I just thought, Netflix and true crime, the impact of making a murderer... How did it all sort of, how did it do? How did it perform? And um, it was a partner, filmmakers Moira Demos and Laura Ricciardi worked on the series for 10 years. So it's another big one like The Staircase. And they actually ended up moving to Manitowoc County for three of those years to be there, to be present, to be local during the trial, uh, which obviously they captured during the first series. They did rush, in my opinion, the second series, and that only took them three years compared to the 10 years. They rushed it. It's, I felt uh, like the second series was sort of a cash-in job. Nah. Zelna, I think, was great. I think she's really watchable and really good. And I think it also did dig up a lot of possible... It, it did make you think of other people that could be involved in it. Well, I don't think the mm. first series really doesn't point the finger really at anyone else. Maybe I'll rewatch it, but I just, yeah, didn't find that anything like the first one. But, um, yeah, they, they were initially film students. They, they found a bit of information about the case and decided, actually, look, pick up your cameras. Let's go. Let's go over to Manitowoc. And eventually, after pitching the show to the likes of HBO and PBS, they eventually sold the rights to Netflix at a very similar time to Netflix uh, being offered to the owners of Blockbuster for just $150 million. Um, but now it's uh, worth $191 billion. Anyway, I thought, interesting, interesting. What impact did it have when it was released? Uh, Netflix saw in the first four weeks of Making a Murderer being added Dan just had a massive yawn um, in the first 
four weeks since Making a Murderer was added to Netflix, almost six million new signups happened. And I thought that's that's a that's a lot of new signups for Netflix. Wow. Yeah. Wowza. Wowza. I'm back. And uh, and within the first five weeks of it being added, more than twenty million unique viewers watched all of the episodes of Making a Murderer. So I thought that's interesting. And then I thought I'd do a little quiz for Tom and Dan. Uh, only a very quick one. I then thought, ooh, what are the most played things on Netflix? Or ever. Ever. I've uh, broken it down into the top three films and the top three series that have had the most viewing hours contributed to them. The UK office? Nope. Not the UK, sorry, I meant American office. Oh, no. But that's 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 not often on Netflix, though, is it? It comes and goes, doesn't it? I'll be honest, the top three series are all very new. Okay, uh, Rick, and Mor- <gasps> Rick and Morty? Squid uh, uh, Squid Games. Squid Games Season 1 is number one of the series with 1.65 billion hours. Oh, billion wow. hours watched. Yeah, it's nuts. That's crazy. Afterlife. No, I don't think that's. Matt, fucking tweets about it. Stranger Things, of course. Boom, boom, boom. Down on the money, he's got number one and two for series, the top two. That's <sighs> 1.35 billion hours watched for Stranger Things Season 4. You'll never get the third one. I've not seen it. Well, you might have seen it, though. Go on, then. Wednesday. Series oh, 1. 1.23 billion. That's one of no. the most top... It's the third most watched series. Wow. Yeah, 1.23 billion. Okay, so mm. two points for Dan, then. He got two of the top series. Top films, I believe, have all come out within the last year or so. I've watched one of them. Uh, I can give you some clues. I can give you yeah, the give actresses me, or actors. Uh, Leo DiCaprio's in one of them. Oh, the world, some of the world. Oh, don't look up. Don't look up. Dan, 3 0. Sorry, Tom. Bugger me. He actually just took violence. Uh, All right, this one will give it away straight away. Sandra Bullock. Recent films. Blindfolded. Uh, Blind box. Blind box. Fuck. Do I get that? I'm going to give you a half point each there because Tom got bird and you got box. Blind box. (laughs) (laughs) and we just need one more which is actually so sorry so don't look up 359 million viewing hours number two on there and number three was bird box 282 million viewing hours i've never seen or heard of the number one film it's red notice never heard of it nah 364 million viewing hours Mm. red notice so yeah Squid Game, Stranger Things, Wednesday, Red Notice, Don't Look Up, and Bird Box. Oh, because it's got it's got bloody The Rock, Dwayne oh, The Rock Johnson Johnson in it. So all his, all his films bang. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, just Netflix and streaming and that. It's interesting, isn't it? So back to the episode. I found that really fun, actually, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Cheers, Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Twelfth of October, two thousand and four. So there's a lot of kind of he. I mean, Avery's interviewed when he um, is released about how he feels, and he's just saying, "I'm just going to take each day at a time. I'm going to spend time with my family." Um, but a lot of people are asking straight away, you know, what are your plans? Are you going to take legal action? Have you taken advice on how you'd be compensated? On the twelfth of October, two thousand and four, Stephen Avery asks for thirty-six million dollars from Manitowoc County, Thomas Kukarek, and Dennis Vogel. This sum is equal to $1 million for every year spent in prison and another $18 million for compensation. Um, now, again, when, when he announced, because he was very public, the, the first legal team that he had uh, in that they were going to launch this suit, um, there was a lot of initial... It was kind of like it's the little guy taking McDonald's to court, essentially, isn't it? It's, it's, um, I haven't had that expression. No, I know, yeah. 
Um, what's it like? It's the equivalent of, I don't know. David and Goliath. Yeah. But David you. hasn't got the slingshot. He's just got his bare knuckles and he's not going to win. And his knuckles are greasy from the s- scrapyard. Um, so yeah, he, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And there's free Goliaths. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically there was a lot of, there's a lot of skepticism about there's no way Stephen's going to win this amount of money. I mean, his cousin, uh, Kim DeCat would go on to say, they're not just going to hand Stephen Avery $36 million. Yeah, she said it like that, and yeah. that, she was very much right. They, the the county were embarrassed by this. They weren't necessarily very, very much holding their hands up, saying we made a mistake. They were trying to say, well, we believed we got it right, and we believe mm. we had the right person in custody, and the right person for the crime was convicted. But I guess we got it wrong. They were there was not really. I imagine a formal apology was made to uh, Avery, but soz. Yeah, yeah, it did seem very soz. Um, so, yeah, uh, there's a lot of kind of scepticism about there's no way he's going to get that much, but he might get some. And it was a, a hugely embarrassing moment for the county and uh, senior officials within law enforcement. On the 31st of October 2005, on this day, the it's Avery Halloween. Bill... is Halloween as well. Maybe some ghost noises. Ooh, I'm the ghost who lives in Thank you, boys. On this day, uh, which is Halloween of 2005, just to remind you, uh, no more ghosts, the Avery Bill is passed. And this was a bill used to ensure that a wrongful conviction like the one that Stephen Avery faced for 18 years could not happen again. The name would later be changed to the Criminal Justice Reforms Bill following Stephen's alleged involvement in the murder of Teresa Holbach. So, Teresa Holbach was meant to be going to a Halloween party after work with her family. She was a freelance photographer who was working for Auto Trader at the time of her murder. On the 31st of October 2005, she had three appointments to take pictures of cars. Her last appointment was at the Avery Salvage Yard in order to take a picture of a minivan. Stephen Avery had called Auto Trader saying that his sister, Barbara Janda, wanted to sell her red minivan. Various reports say that Stephen had called Auto Trader three times that morning to ask for, quote, that same girl who was here last time. The first two times it had been alleged that he used Star 67 to hide his identity, so essentially to make anonymous phone calls. 141 over in the UK, isn't it, Ben? Is 141, yeah. You're absolutely right. Don't need any stars either, do you? Just 141. Straight (laughs) anonymous. There's enough in the sky for me. (laughs) Now, it has been highly contested as to why Stephen did this, with some people saying that he did this by accident and others saying that Stephen knew Teresa would not want to come if she knew she was going to be seeing him. Stephen, now the reason why she was a bit dubious of going to uh, the Avery Salvage Yard is because on one occasion uh, where she went to take photos at that property, Stephen had once opened the door to Teresa wearing only a towel. In addition to this, at the beginning of October, Teresa had been receiving some harassing calls. After going to the Avery Salvage Yard at 2.37pm, Teresa would never be seen again. Have either of you guys ever answered the door in a towel? Never. No. Uh, In my dressing gown. Okay. Have but you? Not, not a towel, yeah. I can imagine you, Ben, they're going to sign for this package. You, you sign for this one first. <laughs> now. And that doesn't sound very much like me. No, I think I've done a dressing gown answer like like Dan. I get a front draft from the, the front door as well. So could have like my Marilyn Monroe, like, oh, I'll sign. <laughs> um, yeah. oh, did you see my second note? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But then Stephen saying that Stephen, it's been proven in court, did not own underwear. So maybe that was like his. Sort I don't of... like that. Working no, in no. a physical job, hot job, 
wearing jeans, I imagine, all the time. Oh, chafy arsehole. Yeah. I'm thinking more about the cock and balls. Chafy um, everything, really. Yeah. So there are rumours that he would call asking all the time for Teresa uh, and that she was very uncomfortable, obviously, um, the incident of him wearing only a towel. Then, to play devil's advocate, if he'd done that before, acted creepy and answered the door in only a towel, can you not just say no? And I'm not going there? So but now I'd never blame the victim. Oh, no, no, that's not what I was doing. I was just asking questions. Oh, yeah, no. Friendly, saying, friendly detective, just asking questions. That's fine, yeah. I was just saying, like, I personally um, wouldn't. And also, Avery's IQ, because this will be my sort of defence for him, I don't think he's smart enough to know about Star 67. Not a lot of, not a lot of uh, knowledge no, needed he, there. He doesn't have a lot of it. I don't know. I just don't think he's that sort of... I don't think he's very intelligent or cunning. He doesn't strike me as cunning. Is it cunning? He probably did prank, prank calls prank calls when he was younger. Yeah, I'm with Tom on that one. I don't think it's high IQ to hide your number. In, yeah, but in... in the rest of what's going to happen. He's smart enough to take a bit... take apart a car and put it back together and fix it. I think he's got enough. Okay, to yeah. Press yeah. two buttons before. But it'll be this will be my sort of trend throughout the rest of this timeline. I think that there is some degree of sophistication needed and intelligence needed that he just I don't feel he has. Especially with Brendan. Um, maybe I t yeah maybe I take back the Star sixty seven thing. Third of November two thousand and five, Teresa Holback is formally declared missing by her mother. The police contact Stephen, as well as the other appointments that Teresa went to that day, asking for information. As Teresa's last known location was at the Avery residence, suspicion quickly falls on Stephen Avery. We will play a clip for you now. So there was actually a uh, yeah, news reporters kind of descended on uh, the uh, the Avery salvage yard, and Stephen is interviewed. You know hours after Teresa goes missing um and yeah there's a i watched just before we uh before we started today a body language expert kind of analyzed that interview but the comment section was full of how can you because he made no mention to the fact that Stephen had been uh already arrested and charged with a crime served time 18 years for a crime he did not commit and the trauma that that would enact on a on an individual it talked about how his iq was low and therefore his body language may have already been slightly different uh in that he was nodding a lot when he was making so the argument was he was nodding a lot which meant that he was trying to convince the reporter that what he was saying uh. was true but you it, they did he didn't make the body language expert didn't make any reference to the fact that he'd served 18 years for a crime he did not commit he would have been understandably nervous if you know he was even being considered for this and knowing that also possibly he could have been framed for a crime he did not commit allegedly um so yeah there was it was just really interesting because i found the analysis really sound and it made sense but then also they weren't considering all of the previous trauma and what that must do to a person so yeah it's on youtube if you guys want to check it out but it's, it's an interesting watch but we'll play the clip for you now of the uh the news station interview with steven what kinds of questions were police asking you this one she was out here with time around that was about it did they ask you to take a polygraph or anything like that no no well tonight the cops come and they asked me if I remember anything, and I told them no. no. Then they asked me if they can come in the house and check the house over. I said, oh, I got no problem with that. Come on in. So they checked the house all over. Well, everything was fine, and they left. If they asked you to take a polygraph, would you? Would you not? Why? Well, I got nothing to hide. 
they want me to, but I don't care. I'm just at home, work up there all day. I barely go anywhere. Once in a while, I go to Mantua, I can come back. That's about it. So, so when you heard about it, how did you feel? It's too close to home, something happening. It's not good. Everybody locks their doors now around here. It's pretty bad when something happens around here. I can see somewhere else, but this is too close to home. And you get a little worried and you know your family. <clears throat> and it doesn't, I mean, knowing her, I mean, I, are you, what are your feelings for her parents? And They must be going through hell. You know, I figured my mom and my dad and everybody else, my family, they went through hell when I went to, to the, did 18 years for something I didn't do. I figured they're going through probably the same thing because they lost somebody or whatever. You know, she's got to be out there somewhere. So somebody should be looking. 5th of November, 2005. A search of the Avery residences finds Teresa's car on the premises. The Toyota RAV4 SUV was found at the salvage yard. And it's found in really eerie... It's it's found as if someone has attempted to cover it up, but really not attempted yeah. to cover it up. Like There's some sticks and planks led against it, a little bit of plastic sort of um, tenting. That's... <laughs> not tenting is it what's that tarp tarp yeah a little bit of tarp sort of flailing in the wind um it looks to me like that car has suddenly been put there whether it's suddenly been put there by steven or suddenly been put there by someone else who knows but it looks like it's been made to look like someone's tried to cover it up mm. rather than someone's actually tried to cover it up because surely they could have just if he lives and works on a scrapyard surely he could just junk it very very quickly and get rid of everything yeah, you'd have thought so. Like a needle in a haystack finding an exhaust in a scrapyard. Similar. Um, but it was there, and I just think, again. But then, is that just someone with a low intelligence trying to hide a vehicle? Or is it someone trying to make it look like someone with low intelligence is trying to hide exactly. a vehicle? It's inception, this. A later forensic search of the car would find some of the most crucial evidence in the Stephen Avery case. His blood was found inside the vehicle. Blood was also found in flakes on the driver's side carpet and in other various locations inside the outside of the car. Some people believe this blood was planted. One person who follows this line of thinking is Kathleen Zellner. Now, she's a big character in season two she's of Madras. Tom is a big fan. Um, she is a badass, to be fair. She said, We're not saying the cops planted it, we're saying the killer planted the blood. Zelna has since conducted tests to show Avery's innocence. The lack of blood in more locations proves to many that he could not have been actively bleeding inside the car. Moreover, if he was actively bleeding like the prosecutors claimed, then the blood should have seeped into the carpet rather than being in flake form on top of it. Furthermore, no fingerprints were found that belonged to Stephen Avery. For this to happen, he must have been wearing gloves. How could his blood then transfer onto the car if he had gloves on, was one of their key arguments. Those who believe in Stephen's guilt theorise that the blood came from an open wound on his finger. Furthermore, they discredit claims that the blood was planted by a killer or a cop. I mean, he did have, there's a photo, he did have a quite a deep gash to his finger. Yeah. In the Making a Murderer documentary, a lot of significant focus is placed on a small hole found at the top of a vial of blood that contained Stephen Avery's blood. And this was uh, blood taken uh, from him voluntarily, but people claim that it was basically siphoned from the top of that, whereas actually 
Ken Kratz would later argue that that's how you in insert the blood into the vial. You inject it through the top lid. So, yeah, there's uh, it's a fascinating part of the documentary because it's very the way it's angled. You very much believe that oh my god, his blood was uh, his blood was planted. Yeah. Um, so, although the documentary suggests that the hole in the vial of blood was significant, everybody at the time knew, and certainly the filmmakers had to know that the hole in the vial was put there by the nurse who drew the blood said Ken Kratz. It is a common knowledge that the blood is usually placed into the vial via a syringe, which requires poking a hole in through the top of the vial. Furthermore, the nurse who drew the blood from Avery, Marlene Kraintz, um, was due to testify in court, yet she was never called to the stand. The theories do not stop there. The vial of blood came from Stephen's previous criminal conviction and the, the test tube with the blood in it was basically placed into a sealed box. However, the box had a piece of tape uh, sealing the surrounding area, which had clearly been ripped off. So they very heavily implied that someone had opened the box, taken the tube out, siphoned a bit of blood from it and splattered it all over the, well, not all over the car, but in certain parts of the car. This detail is later heard in court as Stephen's defense team built their case around the planting of the blood. On the 8th of November, 2005, Brendan Dassey is taken in for questioning. He is only 16 years old at the time. The next day, his uncle would be arrested for the illegal possession of a firearm, as Avery was a felon and this violated the terms of his parole. So this is an absolutely huge moment in the case. So what is undeniable is at the time of his arrest, Dassey, 16, had serious cognitive deficiencies. He failed to comprehend the gravity of the situation, which when watching the documentary is really hard to watch. You can tell he's not mm -hmm. quite understanding it. You can tell he's being coerced and led throughout the interview. And the questions he's asking afterwards, thinking, you know, he'll be able to go home straight afterwards. He doesn't see the gravity of what he's admitting to and, and what he's... It's painful to watch, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's, it's really horrible. So as I said, he failed to comprehend the gravity of the predicament or that the um, law enforcement um, he encountered was shamelessly manipulating him. He asked his mother the meaning of the term inconsistent and she did not know either. So it kind of goes to show um, the lack of IQ there and not understanding exactly what he's answering to and what he's being led to answer. So after a four hour interrogation in which investigators Fassbender and Weigart all but spoon fed a confession to him, Dassey wonders if he'll be able to return to his high school to turn in his project. So yeah, that really like, just shows the innocence there. And he doesn't realize he'll be going away for a very long time, not to be free again to this point. Initially, Brendan likes his court appointed counsel, uh, Len Konitschke, uh, because they share a favorite animal, which is cats. So this Len Kaczynski is a, yeah, a really, odd character he received a lot of backlash like many people when this first uh, came out but yeah he seems like one of the most incompetent court appointed counsels yeah he ended up being a judge for yeah. lo lower crimes um and he was involved in a odd sexual assault case or sexual harassment case where he would meow at his uh assistant Oh, that explains the cat's thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's very bizarre. So mm. feel free to look into that. A few weeks later, speaking to his mother, uh, Dassey complains, I'm going to miss WrestleMania on April 10th. Um, not realising he kind of has bigger problems than that. He'd gone to say, you think I can get there by 1.29? I have a project due in sixth hour. That's Brendan Dassey after being interrogated. Just kind of, you know, still thinking he's going to go back to school and be able to uh, turn in the project. So, yeah, the whole thing. I mean, he's interrogated for four hours straight at one point. I mean, some part of it as well wasn't fully released. Was it the whole interrogation wasn't released to public? I think they had about an hour with him beforehand. It's also there's no counsel there at the time. It's like, I mean, it's over here in the UK. If, if someone's believed not to have enough IQ or it be able to comprehend and know exactly what's going on, uh, they're assigned an appropriate adult. Uh, that didn't happen in this case. He didn't have a legal representative there with him. He was very much just the two detectives 
basically manipulating and molding him into the story that they needed yeah. him to do. It's, yeah, it's horrific. So we'll we'll play a little bit of the Brendan Dassey interrogation for you now. Dan, what do you do? I just went to go get the mail and I went in the house. So you go get the mail, you go in the house, and then what? Sat down and watch TV. Okay, Brandon, you're doing a good job. Let's go back to when you go outside and get your bike. And you're going to go get the mail. You said you heard screaming. Any more? Tell us more about what you heard. You said, help me. Was it female screaming? Yeah. What else did you hear her say, if anything? That's all I heard. And is her vehicle still there? Yeah. Where is the vehicle that time? By the big trees. Did that scare you when you heard that screaming? Sort of. Did you go over to his house then? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. And you said you rode your bike down to get the mail. Yeah. Came back. And then what'd you do? Honestly. You went over to his house? No. What'd you do? I went to our garage and put the bike away. Uh -huh. And Brian was in there working on his car. Yep. Uh, he asked her if she wants any help, and he said no. That if he wanted help, he would come in and get me or something. But I went in the house and I sat down. Did Brian hear the screaming too? No, he had the radio going. Did you tell Brian? No. Okay, you went to the house and sat down. And then? I waited and then I watched TV for a little bit. And my mom came home. And she comes home at about what time? About 4.35. Okay. And then what happens? On the 15th of November 2005, Stephen Avery is formally charged with the murder of Teresa Holbach. Guilty. His brother, his, his brother Chuck, told the New York Times that, quote, there are 36 million reasons why they should be doing this to him, heavily implying, obviously, that um, the state wanted Avery inside so that he would not be able to obtain his earnings from his lawsuit. Since Teresa's car was found on Avery's property, more evidence had linked Stephen to the murder. A pair of handcuffs and leg irons were found, which were alleged to have been used to have tied up the victim. However, Stephen said, I bought them. I wanted to try out something different with Jody. Jody was at this point Stephen's former ex-girlfriend, who had since admitted that she believed Stephen did kill Teresa due to his violent nature. And the handcuffs and leg irons that they found did not show traces of either Teresa's DNA or Brendan Dassey's. Leg irons just, just doesn't, nothing sounds mm. sexy about that, does it? No, it doesn't, no. no Get I tried. the leg irons. Leg irons. No, you can't even if you try. Say it, Dan, because you've got a nice voice. Leg irons. Mm, yeah, no, cool. that's made my, uh, going in, in my body. In addition to Leg this, irons. Oh, it's back out. 
In addition to this, Teresa's car key was found in Avery's house. Now, this is again a kind of a pivotal moment in the case, one of many pivots. Um, Many have disputes over the car key. First of all, the key was a spare key for Teresa's car and not an original. In addition to this, the key was found after several searches at, well, allegedly found after. Yeah, I mean, Ben, this is something we discussed earlier, wasn't it? Me and you saying the documentary heavily lean on the fact that they were in there constantly always looking around there then miraculously one day the key appeared but apparently on the first proper search like the official search of the property the key is found yeah it's um it's yeah it's i'm gonna say that's another red flag in the floor Stephen. Yeah, the documentary heavily implied that Sergeant Andy Colburn um, had been had access to the property and was heavily speculating that they need to find a key. And then all of a sudden, as soon as he entered the building, uh, he had a moment to himself, and then boom, the key appeared. Uh, so yeah, Andy Colburn. We'll talk about him, but he actually ended up taking Netflix and the creators of Making a Murderer to court, but he lost his uh, he lost his lawsuit. And he walked back to his car and he couldn't find his key. That's really bad. Oh. <laughs> So yeah, so this is a big, big moment. And again, the filmmakers allege that the the property was searched several times and someone may have planted a key. However, uh, the prosecution and the state uh, very much uh, go by the narrative that the key was found on first attempts. It was found by a Manitowoc law enforcement official who I believe was Andy Colburn, Sergeant Andy Colburn, uh, Andy Cole. Uh, had Shira the other week, who was later deposed in Stephen's civil suit for his previous wrongful conviction. Stop shaking your head. The car keys allegedly showed traces of Avery's sweat. This would have been extremely difficult for police officers to obtain if they were planting DNA evidence and plotting against Stephen Avery. Some of the most damning evidence is that Dassey had confessed that a bullet found in the garage came from a gun that hung on Avery's wall. And again, this gun went missing and then it was suddenly found. So again, that was a big moment in the in the documentary series. Forensic testing did show that there was a match between the bullet and Teresa's DNA. And despite the bullet being allegedly missed in previous searches of the garage, it was later found. This bullet was found months later by a Manitowoc law enforcement officer. And again, another moment that we've not really not really touched on is that on whilst this search for Teresa was going on, her family got fully involved and they are it is the search party forming together is filmed in the series and there are a lot of people point the finger at the ex-boyfriend a lot of yeah. people say that the brother was acting a bit suspicious but the ex-boyfriend yeah when i was... bought the um when i was buying the uh documentary in terms of believing it i i was i was thinking the, the ex-boyfriend seemed a yeah. bit fishy he just he was he was running the show wasn't he and they weren't mm-hmm. together anymore they'd recently broken up there was something about phone calls to her yeah. cell yeah. from his that would seem to be have made to cover up and also it just gave me a bit of the Huntley vibe has been involved in the search and all that yeah. kind of thing putting himself in front of the camera and there are then obviously very infamous audio calls stating that they'd found um, they'd found Teresa's car and one of the first questions that the officer asks is do you have Stephen in custody or they, they imply that have you got Avery arrested doesn't matter if you found the car is Avery arrested so again they'll 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 lean towards that to to sort of point to the idea that uh, Avery was framed. So this trial is a massive, massive trial. And obviously he's he's charged with um, the alleged murder of Teresa Holbach. So Stephen hires a team of lawyers, Jerry Buting and Dean Strang. And I think, again, like many people, when this first came out, the, 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 the audience fell in love with these two. They were very good, competent legal defense team. And um, 
yeah, they have very quite away with words, I think, both of them, much like the defense in the staircase. Uh, so Jerry Buting, one of the co-defense counsel uh, for Stephen Avery, said uh, in the opening statements, who better than a police officer would know how to frame somebody? And this is a narrative that they'll push openly throughout the trial, but they'll also admit how difficult it is to go into a case defending the idea that your client's been framed against the state. I'd say a competent photographer would be good at framing people. So remains were found at the um, Avery residence and there's a barrel uh, where the burnt child remains were found, which they believed to be um, body parts. And it was confirmed that these were in fact Teresa Holbeck's, which automatically makes Stephen guilty in the eyes of many. Um, it also the barrel also contained Teresa's camera and her phone. A tooth was found specifically. So yeah, I mean, not looking good. A key found, um, but, you know, burnt child remains, phone, car. It's all yeah, it's all adding up there. And two witnesses claim they saw Stephen Avery place these items inside of the burn barrel. Teresa's bone fragments were found intermingled with steel tire belts, and it was claimed by the prosecution that these were used to accelerate the fire. Uh, we cannot forget that Stephen did burn his cat in one of the early earlier crimes there. So yes, it's all not looking very good for Stephen there. On the 14th of February 2006, Stephen Avery's $36 million lawsuit is settled. And he, uh, yeah, he is found to be owed a massive amount of compensation by the state. However, Stephen could not be given such a huge sum of money whilst he was being charged with another crime. And this is where a lot of people push the idea that he was framed because the state didn't want to hand over this uh, amount of money but also they didn't want to settle in Stephen's favor so consequently he receives 400,000 instead which he obviously uses to hire uh, Jerry Buting and Dean Strang and again there's accusations here that he was only given this amount because they knew that this would run out eventually in terms of his legal defense but again I, I don't know about that one on the 27th of February 2006 Brendan Dassey's mother Barbara speaks with investigators she tells the police that her son had bleach stains on his trousers as he had been helping his uncle clean the garage on the day of the murder Brendan also corroborates this story. So yeah, so that ties in kind of, well, it, it conflicts the stories that the interrogators kind of coaxed into Brendan, but it lines up with what his mother is now saying to investigators. So yeah, it's all getting a bit uh, convoluted here. 1st of March 2006, Kayla Dassey involves Brendan Dassey when she tells her school counsellors that her uncle had asked one of her cousins to help him move a body. Which isn't, again, not looking good for Stephen there. Why would, why would, she lie about it as well yeah uh, brendan is formally questioned by the police he is not in the presence of his mother or a legal representative and brendan's stories changes throughout the course of the interview and there are suggestions that he may have been forced into a confession by the police so whilst the pair are facing the charges brendan is formally questioned by the police once again and he is not in the presence of his mother or a legal representation again and brendan's story changes throughout the course of the interview and as before, it's suggested that heavily that he's been, um, the police are leading down the road they want him to go down, asking him these questions and, and trying to pretend that if they answer certain questions in a certain way, then he will face a lot less time. So Brendan himself would later go on to retract his statement, stating that he'd been forced into the confession. The police tell Brendan that his story does not add up. One police officer tells him, I'm not saying that I'm going to put words in your mouth, so we're having a problem with that. They tell Brendan, you need to tell me, you need to be honest with me. I can't tell you. I can't tell you these things. So later in the interrogation, Brendan will go on to admit to sleeping with Teresa's dead body and helping Stephen move the corpse. Which is, you question like, how could someone admit to doing something like that, even if they had low IQ, how they could be forced to do that. But, you know, we've mentioned this series many a time, confession tapes, with people with a lot of higher IQs than 
than Brendan um, being forced to admit to murdering people. So it's not out of the question for that thing, that kind of thing to happen. On the 2nd of March, 2006, following his confession, Brendan is formally charged with being party to the first degree homicide, as well as sexual assault and mutilation of a corpse. He is just 16 at this time. On the 7th of March 2006, additional charges are added to Stephen's original charges. And this is based now off of uh, Brendan's kind of narrative of events, timeline of events. And again, they just don't quite add up with what he told uh, officers in his first interrogation. So it almost seems like maybe someone's told him to say these things or given him that story to, to go with. Uh, so these new charges are sexual assault, kidnapping and false imprisonment. However, they are later dropped during a pre-trial hearing. It is also decided during this hearing that Stephen's alleged accomplice may not testify at Stephen's trial and that the jury can hear about the previous wrongful conviction. On the 12th of February 2007, Stephen Avery's trial officially begins. He is facing a jury of six men and six women. Ken Kratz is the lead prosecutor for the case and he claims that Avery brutally killed Teresa Holbach. Avery's defence claim, however, that the evidence was planted against him by the police. And again, they, they state several times in the documentary that to blame the state or to go against the state in any kind of case is a very, very difficult thing to do. And one quote from uh, one of Avery's defence lawyers, Dean Strang, he said the following. No sane lawyer looks forward to presenting a defence that the police framed as client. No sane lawyer. All due respect to the council, the state is supposed to start every criminal trial swimming upstream, and the strong current against in which the state is supposed to be swimming is the presumption of innocence. Most of what ails our criminal justice system lies in the unwarranted certitude of the part of the police officers and prosecutors and defence lawyers and judges and jurors that they are getting it right, that they are simply right. Just a tragic lack of humility in everyone who participates in our criminal justice system. In closing, Dean Strang says the following. The court knows, I know. Perhaps some in the public or some in the media even have forgotten that he's innocent. As he sits here today, he is legally presumed innocent. I mean, we can dress him up in something that makes him look like he jumped off a Monopoly game board or something. He's a get-out-of-jail-free card come to life. But he's innocent. During closing arguments, Ken Kratz tells the jury that it should consider the matter of whether police planted evidence to implicate Avery irrelevant. Kratz says that if you believe Avery is guilty of murdering Holbach, the ends justify the means. Avery's trial lasts for five weeks before he is found guilty of first-degree murder and the illegal possession of a firearm. A few weeks later, on the 1st of June 2007, he is sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And I remember this uh, when the sentencing moment happens, because obviously it's, it's framed as a, a very dramatic scene in the case, but I remember the judge sort of stutters when delivering the sentence and I always think how on edge your anxiety must be when you're about to hear the verdict and for mm. a judge then to stutter or get a word wrong or a letter wrong ugh, it happens quite a lot in passing the judgment Judge Patrick Willis says quote you are probably the most dangerous individual ever to set foot in this courtroom after the guilty verdict is read Ken Kratz tells a pool of reporters we knew what kind of person Stephen Avery was when this trial began and uh, yeah, his statement here was questioned. I think you can see uh, you can see Jerry Buting and Dean Strang in the background, kind of looking perplexed at this statement. Uh, and his statement does seem odd, uh, given that in the previous twenty or so years, uh, Avery had already spent nineteen of those, which was almost all of his adult life, incarcerated. And eighteen of those years, he was incarcerated, obviously for a crime that he did not commit. 
But I think they very much painted a picture of the animal abuse, the theft, the uh, petty crimes, the violence, and uh, yeah, this obviously odd uh, harassing behavior towards Teresa uh, given that they had a, a previous relationship or they knew each other and it's worth noting obviously that we are obviously covering all of this in one episode and you know there's two hours upon hours documentaries on this case so we can't cover every single aspect of it uh, but and as well Ken Kratz is a huge part of the you know, first series and he comes out with some infamous lines about saying how sweaty Stephen Avery is. And he really goes, "Yeah, his body's so sweaty." And just releasing all this information out there, he has quite the mimical voice as well. Um, and he would go on himself to not paint himself in glory. Not too long after all these things, a lot of things came out about Ken Kratz. Yeah, um, but yeah, we can't look at all the, the things as in much detail as we maybe would. On the sixteenth of April, two thousand and seven. Dassey's trial commences. His trial lasted for nine days. During this time, the jury heard about Dassey's connection to Stephen Avery, and they were reminded that some of the evidence could have been contested. It is important to note that Brendan had retracted his confession at this point, stating that the police had coerced him into a confession. Another thing to mention about Dassey's lawyer, Ken Kaczynski, um, so with lawyers, they would they would bill their hours hourly, um, and he it was said <laughs> they obviously keep a note of what they're doing, etc., etc. He spent an hour with Dassey, an hour for someone <laughs> and he yeah. spent 30 hours with the media it's crazy absolutely absurd just showing going to show you know as soon as the lights came out he was happy to be in front of the cameras and stuff but he wasn't you know giving his client any time yeah how so he that's, became a judge as well eventually that's beyond me. yeah so um brendan would be put on, put on the stand and be asked by the prosecution what book that you read ever had a story of a woman chained to a bed raped stabbed and then her body thrown in a fire what book would that be sir and Brendan responds, I believe it was called Kiss the Girls. But they basically with that were expecting to, because they are very patronising to him, the prosecution, and they want they want to find him because Brendan is saying that he gave all of this information in his confession because of a book that he read and because mm. of what police were telling him to say. So when they were like, okay, well, what? where did you ever read this in a book? And he straight away goes, I believe it was called Kiss the Girls, like quite eloquently. Mm. Um, so yeah, that kind of took the jury by surprise. Um, and again, people did, he was advised, should he take the stand in his own defense? Does it look worse if he doesn't say anything, but for him to come back like that, and it was a book where actually a scene like this does take place. Um, well, yeah, it was quite a profound moment during the, uh, during the trial. At his murder trial, Brendan Dassey takes a stand in his own defense and Dassey claims that he made up the dark story of how he and his uncle Stephen raped and tortured Halbach. As there is no physical evidence, only Dassey's confession, the trial hinges on whether the jury believes that Dassey told the investigators then, or what he is testifying to now. This moment occurs in episode 9 of Making a Murderer. It is the first and only time viewers see a side of Dassey that suggests maybe he is not in fact as intellectually challenged as implied. Um, is he finally telling the truth? Was he coerced to say this line? So Dassey would go on to answer this question, which was quite condescending, and he answered it in quite a sarcastic, coherent tone. The jury deliberated for four hours when deciding the fate of Brendan Dassey. Ultimately, Dassey is found guilty of first-degree murder, mutilation of a corpse, and first-degree sexual assault. And on the 2nd of August 2007, Brendan Dassey was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole in 2048. So, yeah, so that was the uh, the timeline for the Brendan Dassey and Stephen Avery case. We're now going to move on to some aftermath. There are quite a lot of different events that have occurred, obviously, since this sentencing. So we're going to jump into that now. So some aftermath for you. 
Since making a murderer shot the case back into fame, those who were involved in the case have heavily bashed the series. They say that the series is heavily one-sided and that it uses evidence and manipulates it to fit the narrative that Stephen Avery was wrongly incarcerated for first-degree murder due to his troublesome past. As a result, they have written books to combat the claims that they say are false. Oh, and also oh well, I mean, Ben... <laughs> talking about that it's like quite a lot of detail there and uh, some people <laughs> might even say that it's good trivia <laughs> put the jingle down tommy's trivia <laughs> that's terrific a lot harder to sh- shoehorn the word trivia into it wrong <laughs> <laughs> but yes um it's quite a theme that me and ben have gone down i mean it's probably not surprising considering the uh, the case we're covering and how well documented it was um but i basically want to look i'd have thought of um what is the top rated true crime documentaries out there um and i want to see where you know people because i'm making a murderer as i said a lot of people's first uh, glimpse into the um the true crime scene i would say and a lot of people were you know discovering it and then being obsessed with it um so i went over to gq because that's the kind of guy i am yeah to see yeah. what was the top top 10 best true crimes a true crime document series ready to stream now um and can i do a can copy ben a little bit here do you guys want to hazard a guess as to where in the top 10 making a murderer will feature? So are these as voted by the audience of GQ or by GQ themselves? It seems to be one that the GQ journalists um, themselves have come up with here. And I'm, and who am I to take anything away from them? I'm obviously doing the fine work over at GQ. Of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to guess first, Dan? You're pretty on the money with your guesses today, mm. so he's probably going to get top three, I reckon. I would just naturally think make, making a murderer is quite high on the list. Uh, number three. Benny Boy. One. Number ten. Oh shit! Sorry. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they they. Uh, I mean, they're not saying the same kind of language as me, um, in terms of it being biased. drawn out. But like like you, Ben, they go on to say essentially that the second season, made in haste, yeah, after the popularity of the first one, suffers from the weight of its own popularity. Um, but yeah, so that's number ten there. Um, I'm not going to do the whole ten list for you guys to guess. I'll just pick certain ones out for you. The staircase, the one I particularly like, is in, in at number nine. Ooh. Um, the jinx. I guess number one. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah. I was gonna guess the jinx. Yeah, that's number eight. Fuck my ass. Yeah, GQ are quite fussy with this. There's one. This one. The next one is one I watched an incredibly high over once. Just watched the whole series by myself. Did not uh, help the the mood. It's number seven in the GQ. One. It been. I don't know if you've seen. If I give you a clue, um, just saying the word none. Oh. Uh, oh yeah. Um, the what? Not the what? It's the something. And I found that very harrowing. Watch. The Keepers. The Keepers, yeah. Not the Watchers, the um, Keepers. If you can get any in the top three, because I've only seen one of the top three. Wow. Well, I'm quite shocked that Making a Murderer is 10, and you say Staircase was... The Staircase nine. was nine. Yeah. Yeah, so... But there's nice. one that we discussed, actually. I don't know if we discussed it on the main channel one. I think we may have done. The one that we asked Dan... Oh, West of Memphis? Abducted in Plain Sight. Yes, number three. Which, wow. <sighs> just one standalone, though, isn't it? That is standalone, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, is yeah. Interesting. So that's that number one, three. Yeah, that one. Um, I mean, it's more just you, just your mouth wide agape, just not believing what the the parents mm. are, are allowing to happen. Um, but yeah, the uh, number two is the girl in the picture. Never seen it. Netflix. Oh, it's on Netflix, isn't it? Yeah, I've never yeah. seen that. So that's high, very highly rated. Um, might be worth keeping an eye. Out. It's uh, they they go on to uncover an almost thirty year um old kidnapping story. Okay. Which sounds quite interesting. And the, the top one, not going to lie, doesn't look to me immediately compelling. The name's not overly. The inventor, out for blood in Silicon Valley. 
which is 2019. It's HBO. It's an HBO one. Oh, is it that lady who developed, quotation marks, there, a new type of way to test blood? Yes. She, she became like a billionaire overnight, essentially, because she developed this technology, which wasn't true. Yeah, so it's, it's, oh. it's kind of more fraudulent rather than murder. Yeah. Oh. So GQ there. Interesting trying to go, taste. Trying to go, yeah, highbrow with with their list maybe um, yeah so I, I don't know if I agree with their, their list I think the drinks have, the drinks will be up there a lot higher for me and so would Staircase um, but uh, I just thought it was interesting to see what, what the uh, what they believed I, I mean Ron Tomatoes is always a good one to look at and see what they think for true crime um, again I, I when I checked there Making a Murder it wasn't in the 50 best true crime docuseries the, the list is 50, the 50 best true crime docuseries um, but they it didn't feature very highly in that either it would feature at number number twenty nine. They're done. Wow, mm, out of fifty. I think for what it's done for the genre and it's inspired so many others just like it. I yeah. think it was kind of quite um quite a um, trendsetter in that regard. Yes, it's. Uh, I mean, you always have to question with reviews and the lists and what what does it make to be a good true drama series i like ones that make keep you guessing which making error does so so does staircase so there you go but yes that's tommy's trivia and we're, we're working on it we're working on it see you next time tommy's trivia <laughs> that's terrific i think you both get a point for today Ooh. nobody's front runner is what i'm saying <laughs> we're drawing yeah, we are. So yes, as Ben mentioned, a lot of the people involved in the documentary series would go on to release books and release things talking about the case and saying how biased things were. One of these people were the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, who was very much a figure of fun after all this happened. Ken faced legal action of his own following his attempts at an affair with a domestic abuse victim. It never looks good. And it was a client, wasn't it, of his? Yeah. Ugh. At the time, Ken was prosecuting the woman's ex-boyfriend. Ken was a married man at the time, who would later go on to resign in 2010. His book, Avery, The Case Against Stephen Avery and What Making a Murderer Gets Wrong, terrible title, terrible title, heavily discredits the infamous documentary and fires insight into Ken Kratz's own life. No one cares about you, Ken. Yeah. But fair enough pointing holes in the uh, story. That's fine. I got a little bit of Ken Kratz trivia as well. A little bit of Ken Kratz. After the first month of Making a Murderer first airing, uh, Ken Kratz said, I've had 4,000 death threats since Making a Murderer first aired. That's a lot. That's a lot in a, in a month, isn't it? That's, that's a thousand a week. Both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey have continuously appealed their convictions since their trials for them to be denied by authorities. In 2016, there seemed to be a glimmer of hope for Brendan Dassey. I saw this all over Lad Bible. For some yeah. reason, Lad Bible was my source for this. As a judge had basically decided that evidence used for his conviction was illegally obtained. This judge then ruled that Brendan should be released from prison immediately whilst a decision was made. Yet hopes were shattered when the Attorney General filed an emergency motion. This motion argued that Brendan should remain in prison until the appeal process was completed and a decision was made. Shortly after, it seemed that Brendan was going to be set free from the confines of prison. A federal court of appeals reinstated his criminal convictions as they overruled his appeal. And in the second series, I'm sure they made it look like Brendan was about to get out and they were preparing his sort of getting his trailer ready. Um, but unfortunately, no, um, he was, uh, you know, he, it was overruled. And the, the, there's a lot of people sort of there was like crowdfunding for him to go to WrestleMania and all this stuff. Ben, I've got a wild um, prophecy. prophecy. Okay. Um, I think... He eventually will be freed. I agree, and I think he will feature at WrestleMania. I think he'll be on the card. I know. I think he won't be on a card, 
he'll interfere or he'll be taken out into the ring. And Do you reckon? I think he'll be featured. And they'll make a big point of being like, you know, really celebrating him and being like, he'll be some part of it. Like, even if he just comes out and they're like, oh, he's here. And then he hits like someone and they go down. Something like that. I, that's yeah. my prediction will happen within within our lifetime. Red and Dassey yeah. will go to WrestleMania and he will throw a punch. Okay. That's, yeah. Well, play this back, guys, in, in 10, 15 years. I mean, yeah, I remember this being big news at the time and everyone sort of, treating it as though he was going to walk free and there were yeah petitions mm. memes for him going to wrestlemania finally but i could i could see that i could certainly see part of that this uh, so these appeals being overruled and the fact that brendan didn't get out has not stopped those who are working on the case to continue to fight for brendan laura narida who is a lawyer who is helping to free dassey said we're still fighting for brendan dassey every day we've exonerated more than 40 people sometimes it takes one year sometimes 10 sometimes 15 we are still working. This case has also impacted the judicial system. Illinois passed a bill in the May of 2021 that bars police from lying to children during questioning. This is in the hopes that this will prevent false confessions. So as if they were allowed to lie to children before that bill was passed. That is mad, yeah. That's crazy. This new law was directly influenced by the case of Brendan Dassey. So Stephen Avery is now under the legal guidance of Kathleen Zellner, who I mentioned is quite the quite the character you wouldn't want to cross her she's like a legal rock star you know in the emperor's new groove yes you know the witchy movie. lady yeah you can imagine uh yeah yeah I'm just saying yeah. there's some similarities there kathleen has been arguing that another witness to the case murdered holbuck and it's been alleged that this potential suspect was seen by a witness inside Halbach's car, and it was them who then planted evidence against Stephen Avery. Kathleen continues to file post-conviction motions for her client, and she continuously stated that her team are making significant breaks within the case. She tweeted the other day, basically saying, you know, we're still fighting for this, we still have new evidence coming through. Um, there's also been claims, apparently, that a, a, a paper boy... Yeah, this, I was just about boy. to say. Um, yeah. Is that Ken Kratz? <laughs> so sweaty. <laughs> um, basically, a paperboy had seen the car being pushed onto the land, uh, the, the car, Calbert's car being pushed onto the land of the Avery residence early in the morning. And it believed to be Bobby. Bobby Dassey, yeah. Bobby Dassey. So uh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. And he's one that is sort of featured in the in the series as a as a prime suspect. The same with the uh, the ex boyfriend of Teresa, even the brother at one point of Teresa. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's get into it. If Stephen yeah. didn't do it, then who did? Many have cast suspicion over Avery's nephew Bobby Dassey and brother-in-law Scott Tadich. Both of these two men had access to Avery's trailer and could have found ac- and could have had access to Teresa's car. And, and Bobby Dassey's laptop was uh, searched and it showed pornographic images and violence towards women. Kathleen Zellner said this information not only discredits the state star witness, he links the person to the murder. The police ignored his tip. Stephen would not have been convicted if the evidence had never been known. That's outrageous. In March of 2023, Joseph W. Evans Jr. reportedly confessed to the murder of Teresa Halbach. However, the legitimacy of this confession has not been verified yet and it is important to note that Evans had previously stated that Avery had told him that he killed Teresa. So Joseph was serving time in the same prison as Stephen and was convicted following the murder of his own wife. Evans confessed via a letter to Kathleen Zellner that he had killed Teresa at the salvage yard after he hit her in the head. He then detailed how he planted Stephen's blood at the scene of the crime. Yet he did not give a motive for his alleged killing, and as Kathleen Zellner stated, the confession is worthless unless corroborated. Yeah, I mean, people do like to get put themselves in the spotlight, don't they, and claim things. And so yeah, and it's odd that he's swerving time and he's 
you know, he's spoken to Stephen, and maybe he's like, oh, fuck it. I'll t- if I think you're innocent, this is a way of me getting you out of it. And um, mm. but, yeah, there are loads of other sort of uh, inmates at the same prison as Stephen. That this Reddit is full of it of like inmates that claim to have overheard Stephen saying this, Stephen saying that, implicating mm. himself, saying some very dark things about women. Um, so there's yeah, there's a lot of speculation still. Here's an unrelated question for both of you. Would you rather watch? I know Ben obviously watched recently, but if you if you what would you rather watch again? Tiger King or Making a Murderer? Oh well, I've just this weekend rewatched the first series yeah. of Making a Murderer, so probably Tiger King. I yeah, I would I would do Making a Murderer. Ooh, Tom, interesting. Um, Tiger King's a bit more fun, isn't it? Um, as I said, I, th- I think you could you could condense down Making a Murderer. And I'm sure someone better. on. Um, the Discord shared a recent photo of Joe Exotic. He's got like one yeah, legs rolled up. Looks yeah. a bit gangster now. Yeah, it's like, yeah, doc, so it's like seeing Doctor Evil in prison. Um, <laughs> the Wisconsin Department of Justice did release a statement following this new information, but they have also had skepticism confirming DOJ takes all credible reports seriously. But it's important to note that this new information directly contradicts information previously provided by the same individual. Ken Kratz, of course he did, took to Twitter saying, "To be clear, like everyone else, this is news to me." I have no comment until I see the details. I think a bit like a Paul Bearer voice. I have no comment. <laughs> the Undertaker. Um, hashtag making a murderer, which he's still, you know, he's still so relevant. Himself. I am surprised he still has Twitter. I thought he would have deleted it after all those threats. After 4,000 death threats. I'm not going on social media again. In a month, yeah. I mean, I've searched Ken Kratz quickly and there's Kenny Kratz. Ken Kratz, law-abiding citizen, in brackets, sometimes. Kenny Kratzy, <laughs> Ken Kratz is a dick. Prosecutor Kratz. There's, uh, I can't find the real Ken Kratz. <laughs> I thought I found on Reddit. According to Ken Kratz, how sweaty was Stephen Avery? Um, people say Stephen Avery is so sweaty that his sweaty hands are covered in sweat as he wiped away more sweat in his sweaty body. Sweat. <laughs> yeah, it looks like he's deleted his Twitter account. There's a video from the 7th of June, 2023, where he's doing like a, a chat to someone filming him. Uh, but he's not tagged in anything. It's for the Wisconsin Law Journal, and he talks a little bit. Let's see if his voice. Criminals and the like, and so finally, the general public is going to get to see the real evidence. I hope that was presented uh, during the case, and we'll get to know why the defense assertions of planting evidence and uh, other um, wrongs that the police department or prosecution. He looks exactly the same, just a bit bigger. How's he filming like that? I mean, yeah. so far away from the get, get the bush in, get the bush in. All right, Ben. Others have questioned whether Stephen's brothers may have played a part in the murder of Teresa Holbach. Charles Avery was charged in 1999, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, with sexual assault by the use of force on his wife at the time. And although the charges were later dropped and Charles was not convicted, Charles had also allegedly given unreciprocated attention to women who visited the salvage yard. One woman reported that she was afraid of him to her colleagues. Stephen's other brother, Earl Avery, has also come under fire by some theorists. A post-conviction court document states that the brothers had, quote, taken over the day-to-day running of the business. They had the means and the opportunity to kill Miss Hullback, to move her car, to plant the evidence to incriminate Stephen, and then to leave the car so that it would be discovered in a search. In 1995, Earl Avery was charged with sexually assaulting his own two daughters. That was another thing as well. The woman that found the car, there was a lot of, um, because she seemed to find it, it's a big 40-acre scrapyard, and she found it within, yeah, very quick. And like was refusing to um, 
confirm where she was until they said, is this Teresa's car? Is this Teresa's car? It's oh, like, yeah. It's weird. Very odd. Very, very odd. So, yeah. So, yeah, there you go. It's a, it's a highly divisive case. I still talked about my fluffy landing. I still... I don't know. For me to say that I felt Adnan Syed was guilty with less incriminating evidence than Avery, I'm going to have to say that I also believe Avery is guilty, but I believe Dassey Ooh. is innocent. I think that's where I'm landing. But I'm the same as you. I, I don't. Th I don't think Brendan is guilty, and I, don't, I, th I definitely. Th I definitely think Stephen is. And there's lots out there to find. You know, to have a little inconsistencies with stories, but I just think the sexual aggression he's shown previously, the fact that you know he's killing animals. I just think, yeah, it, it, for me, it leads that way. And I think if you if you watch the series with um in mind how biased it is you start seeing little holes in it um so yeah i mean dan what about you where are you with it it is um it's very enlightening i think um like obviously a documentary can be so heavily weighted in one direction but it can mm. still it can still get you can't it and it's, yeah. it's just really it is really enlightening to hear just another complete side to it and obviously he seems a little bit dirty the amount of hatred that you know, he just naturally felt towards King Kratz watching that. Yeah. But if, if he is just trying to put a guilty man behind bars, you're like, yeah. okay, yeah. well that flips that completely. But obviously King Kratz is a fucking dirtbag for what he got on to do anyway. But um, yeah. I, it's, it's, I found it quite interesting as well in a lot of the documentaries and a lot of the different, like even the uh, the body language expert, there's so many different videos out there. If you want more content, there's podcasts, there's videos, there's articles, there's books. Um, but in all the comment sections of all the different videos I watched, so many people still feel innocent. Oh, yeah. So many. So I understand that because it's still part of me thinks, I don't think he had the the cunning, the intelligence. I don't. I, I think he definitely had the um, ability. But do you think Ridgeway had the, the intelligence to do that or the crimes he did? Well, that's very true. Yeah, because they... Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Yeah, it's a it's it's a fascinating case and I still I'll probably go on and watch the second series again in the coming weeks. But yeah, it's such a fascinating case and, and although it's biased, I did really enjoy uh the series when it first came out. I remember the buzz that it caused. There's a song by a band called Cabbage called Free Stephen Avery. Sergeant Andy Colburn, uh, immediately upon the release of Making a Murderer, uh, launched a defamation lawsuit against Netflix for his portrayal in Making a Murderer. He basically tried to allege that the documentary makers defamed him by misquoting him during his testimony and editing uh, snippets of that particular testimony. So the tricky part of that was that they couldn't have edited it because they literally just used video of him talking. And so there wasn't, it was proven to say that uh, Netflix had, uh, the documentary makers and Netflix had no way of actually causing any, uh, any defamation in terms of their pro provision of the content. So his, his testimony is literally a video of his testimony. So according to a Netflix defense lawyer, Colborne's defamation case crashed and burned in spectacular fashion. Oh God. Is that uh, Country Roads? That's cabbage, I don't know. It's just it's terrible. Free Stephen Avery. Free Stephen Avery. Uh, Stephen's parents, Alan and Dolores, have always been supportive of Stephen and maintained their belief in his innocence. However... In May of 2021, uh, just a couple of months before, unfortunately, uh, Dolores passed away, their granddaughter, Brittany Avery, posted in their official Facebook support group that Alan and Dolores didn't want anything to do with Stephen anymore. 
they said, quote, everyone will see soon enough, even his own parents want nothing to do with him anymore because of how he's acting and treating them and the family and has for years when all have done nothing but support him. And in another message on the same day, they said, if Stephen even gets out, his parents and us are putting restraining orders on him. Oh, wow. Is, yeah, kind of, yeah. Yes, indeed. I mean... Hasn't he remarried as well or found love in prison as everyone typically yeah. does? Yeah, yeah, and there's do there's a good Dr. Phil uh, episode you can watch where it's his new partner well, since he's been away. Um, and the, the, interestingly enough, the um, the lady who's fallen for him, the daughter of her, is very supportive of the relationship, which... Oh. Yeah, he can't... I can't see why. And yeah, watching this documentary, he's like, this is the guy for me. Um, but there you go. And it's time for... Um, it's time for our long-awaited lookalikes. Benny, do you want to go first? Yeah, I've got two this week. I've got two. Um, I was... I've got one. Okay. So we'll, I'll pepper mine around yours then because um, I was I was on a bit of a high with my David Spade as the Green River Killer last yeah, week. That, was I know that, that went down well, so I didn't want to drop the standard. Um, I did see a lot of young uh, Stephen as Ryan Dunn, but I'm not going to use Ryan Dunn. I also saw Ken Kratz as the dancing dad from TikTok, but I'm not, not going to go there. You keep, bro, you say that you've done, you've done two already. <laughs> so my two, right? I, 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 the very sympathetic character of this case is Dolores Avery, so I don't want people to think I'm having a go here at all and rest in peace uh, and I do completely feel the parents pain however the whole time I rewatched the documentary uh, series this weekend just gone I had an image in my head and I couldn't shake it Dolores the mother of Stephen again not having a go looks and moves a lot like Hup from the Dark Crystal yeah that's good that's good <laughs> Hup yeah uh, mine is very simple it's quite, I think is a lot of people would have said this is similar Brendan Dassey uh Paul Dano. Yeah. Not now on anything, but there's a little age where they kind of cross. And it's like, yeah, they, they, they make sense. So that would be my one for the week. Very good. Okay. Uh, old Stephen, not much older, but old, like sort of second trial Stephen. I have gone for um, Steve Pemberton from Inside Number Nine, The League of Gentlemen, Benadorm. It's the chin and the eyebrows for me. I'm pretty happy with this one as well, but probably going to go leaning more towards Dolores. I don't see it. No, I don't oh. see that. I, I definitely see that. Just the, look no. at the chin. That's a butt. You got a butt chin. They got butt chins. Yeah. That's Kevin Keegan, but he doesn't look like him. Oh, fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll just scroll back up so you can see how. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with that one. <laughs> I'll stick with that one. Yes, but that is the case of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed it. We hope we lifted the lid and maybe showed you some some sides of the case. Maybe perhaps you didn't know. We'd love to hear what you guys think of the case. Were they guilty? Are both of them guilty? Is just one of them guilty? Or are they all innocent? Let us know. Uh, we'll be back again, of course, next week with another big old case. And uh, in the meantime, guys, if, you, if you're desperate for content, Ben's got a little thing to tell you about. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as we mentioned before, we have a website of our own. It's called icmap.co.uk, and it's basically our new home. Um, we've got 120 Minnesotes over there, which are available in video and audio platform. We do monthly live streams over there. We have, by joining, you get a discount on our merch. We also do a monthly AI Carumba, which is a very fun side podcast we've just launched. And we have a discord on there so you get a little bit of everything by becoming a member over there and right now producer dan has slashed prices in half um which he didn't talk to us about and while slicing them in half he's also announced that our main channel episodes which typically come out every week on a monday um and have you know an advert in them 
um, are going to be released on the website on Fridays, completely ad-free. Wow. Have it. Have it. You get That's a big list of perks, isn't it? So it has a whole host of perks. So why not head over to icmop.co.uk and there's a little list of the perks there. Have a little look. Um, we'd love to have you on board. But yeah, thank you for listening once again and we'll be back again next week with a new case. Until yeah, next one time. Next week is... Sorry, Tommy. Next week is one that animator Phil has requested. <laughs> Worth that interruption, wasn't it? Never is. Trying trying to edit that in probably go on Tom thank you um, but until next time like we always say we say this all the time keep doing <laughs> well what she's doing oh, well unless it's planting evidence and don't blood. wank at oncoming cars oncoming. don't oncome on oncoming cars yeah don't um, harass anyone you don't, don't harass, harass anyone Please don't harass anybody. Honk if you're horny. Well, honk, don't do that. If he's having beers and music by a bonfire, keep it to beers and music by a bonfire. Let the cat just rest by the bonfire. Yeah. Let that pussy rest. Perfect. Just let mm. that, just let that linger for a bit. See okay. you later, guys. See yeah. you next week. Yeah. All best to put. Bye. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.